welcome to Clock Spinning. Uh, this is the podcast of Magic's history as told card by card through the design of a cube. I'm your host, Austin, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Connor. How are you today, Connor? I'm doing pretty good. I'm excited to get started with uh, one of my favorite sets of all time. Yeah, I absolutely adore this set. So the, in this first episode, we're starting off with a bang. We're going to review... Um, over the next few episodes, every single card in the original Champions of Kamigawa block. So that's all the cards in Champions of Kamigawa, all the cards in Sa- uh, Betrayers of Kamigawa, and all the cards in Saviors of Kamigawa. And as we go through, we're going to rate each one, um, and we're going to start building a cube, and then we'll do a couple episodes where we winnow it down into something that's hopefully um, really playable, and also that kind of captures the feel of that original sort of strange period in Magic's history. Why don't I introduce us a little bit to... Uh, the Kamigawa block, and especially Champions of Kamigawa, which is the first set and the one that we're going to be kicking things off with today. Um, so Kamigawa, as uh, most of you probably know, is a Japanese mythology-themed set. Uh, it's a very kind of top-down thematic design, and the design of the set really started with uh, the flavor, and the design of the cards flowed from uh, this Japanese mythology theme that Wizards of the Coast decided to go with right from the get-go. So as part of that, we have a lot of spirit creatures. We have a lot of arcane spells. Uh, Those spirits are called kami. Uh, We have a lot of cool and unusual creature types in this set, like samurai and ninja. Uh, There's some kind of strange tribes as well, like some snake people, uh, the Sorotami, who are kind of moon-themed people. So a lot of cool and unique different kinds of cards in this set. This is this is probably one of the earliest of what Wizards calls top-down designs, meaning designs that start with a theme in mind more than a mechanical identity. And other examples are like Theros, which is Greek mythology themed, or Amonkhet, which is Egyptian. Unlike those sets, uh, Kamigawa really doesn't start from the pop culture idea of Japan, or the original Kamigawa doesn't, I should say. The, the new Kamigawa set very much does. But the original Kamigawa starts from kind of an esoteric deep dive into Japanese mythology and folklore rather than stuff that's more recognizable, um, you know, through pop culture. Right. And and that's kind of one of the uh, big controversies about Kamigawa and one of the uh, maybe lessons learned for wizards coming out of it was uh, that as cool as a lot of the uh, cards and a lot of the ideas in Kamigawa are, um, they just cut a little bit too deep into Japanese mythology and didn't, you know, some people say didn't really hit enough of the familiar elements of Japanese popular culture or um, kind of Japanese iconography that at least uh, a lot of players in the West would kind of recognize and grab onto right away. Um, it's funny that you mentioned Amaket and Theros because some of the other sort of thematic ideas that were on the short list while Kamigawa was being conceived of, uh, were an Egyptian theme or kind of a Greek Roman theme. Really? I had no idea. Huh. Yes. So uh, they decided not to go with the Greek kind of Greek kind of Roman theme because it felt like this, those sorts of ideas and designs were already pretty prevalent mm-hmm. in magic. Um, but of course we saw both Greek and Egyptian themes, uh, later on. Yeah, considering what Kashgau uh, Theros in particular proved to be, I bet they're glad they didn't. Uh, we'll talk. We'll talk more in a bit about how this set uh, was a commercial failure, but I bet they're glad they didn't uh, squander the Greek mythology theme. Yeah, or give up on that entirely. Yeah. So some of the other kind of you know cool and unique things about Kamigawa are um, 
a very big emphasis on legendary creatures. In fact, every uh, rare creature in this set is a legendary. So <laughs> that does mean that many of them are not very good. Uh, they're not very legendary feeling legendaries, but every single rare creature is legendary. Um, we also have the fairly unusual flip cards, uh, which are cards that uh, kind of move from one state to another once you accomplish a certain goal. Uh, really cool thematic cards, but uh, fairly fairly limited design-wise, and that's something that we'll get into too. And those flip cards are really, I think, emblematic of a lot of the set design of Kamigawa in that they started with flavor, as the designers started with flavor, and then they kind of built the mechanics to match. So like Austin said, this is a very top-down way of approaching the set. Uh, we start out with this idea of Japanese mythology, uh, of a war between the spirits and the humans, uh, and then created mechanics that would sort of fit into that storyline. Uh, so we have these unusual and very set-specific mechanics like Soul Shift, Bushido, uh, Ninjutsu. And all of these mechanics, while they're you know, fairly interesting in a lot of ways. They're also very parasitic, meaning that they uh, really only play well with other cards from exactly Kamigawa and are not easily translated into uh, sets that come after them and don't really play very well with cards that were printed before them either. Yeah, something uh, something you said in there about flip cards being emblematic. Another way in which I'd say they're emblematic is in a lot of ways, this set was very innovative uh, in Magic's history. Uh, there's all kinds of ideas that are first explored here that later became really important. Like, for example, having subtypes on instant sorceries, you know, that we wouldn't see that again for quite a long time, I believe all the way till Strixhaven. Um, but playing with type lines, for example, is, is a big part of Magic's design space now. Um, or flip cards are kind of a, um, a poor implementation of transforming cards or cards that physically you turn them over. And those, you know, are some of the most popular cards in Magic's history, werewolves and um, the gods and... All, all kinds and the flip walkers, you know, flip cards are are modern transforming cards are tremendously popular. And I, I feel like that's that's sort of a theme throughout this set is like close, but not quite. Or, or legends are another one, right? Like magic today is EDH first. That's the most popular format in the game that revolves around legends. And Kamigawa says, great, legends are awesome. You know, before EDH is a thing, uh, you know, there's, so there's this funny way in which Kamigawa is a little bit too early and just doesn't quite land a lot of um, a lot of its design experiments, uh, 100% on the first try. Yeah, that's that's a good way of putting it. Uh, another way that it really differs from Modern Magic is that there are basically no gold cards in this entire block, which means that there is a real lack of mana fixing. Uh, and it's it can be very difficult with the cards in this, just the cards in this set, to um, really effectively play in multiple colors uh, because you just don't have a lot of land that it are going to allow you to get a wide variety of colors. You don't have uh, really any gold cards that you're trying to fit in. Yeah, the the entire mana fixing for this block, I believe, is uh, allied tap lands and uh, Tendo Ice Bridge, which can be used once to fix for a color. It's it's pretty brutal. I mean, we'll we'll see when we get through all the spells, but I, I kind of suspect we might have to go outside of Kamigawa block just to make the mana in this cube workable. Yeah. So you might be asking, listening to all this, like, why are, why are we doing this? Like, I don't I don't know if you, it sounds like we're down on Kamigawa, but I'll say we're, we're both very nostalgic and we'll talk more about that in a second, but we're also not, um, 
I wouldn't say blinded by nostalgia. You know, I think we see this set as interesting and experimental and, and very cool. And also, you know, it it made a lot of big swings and many of them didn't land. So it's a, it's kind of an interesting set to talk about and to design from purely because it wasn't a slam dunk. You know, this isn't Innistrad. This isn't Ravnica. This isn't something that um, just 100% landed, that the audience loved, that sold a million copies. You know, these are, there's a lot of obscure cards in here. There's weird ideas that weren't revisited for a long time. And I, that's, that's got a lot of rough edges, but I think it's a big part of the charm of the set too. Uh, also, this this just came at a formative period for us and our, our Magic the Gathering, uh, I guess, lives. Uh, we were maybe, a what, I don't know, a year or so into playing Magic when this came out. Yeah, that's that sounds about right. And I'd say this is when we started to get serious. Like Betrayers of Kamigawa was our first pre-release. I'd say this is the first set I really grokked and gelled with. Like I started with Onslaught and I kind of got it, but I was just learning the game. And then Mirrodin was cool to me, but also... Mirrodin is a um, Mirrodin is a mechanically complex and sort of thematically strange set. You know all the artifacts and stuff. So I think it this was the first one where I was like, I get the flavor, I get what they're trying to do with the cards. Um, it's cool. Uh, I like I like it. It's weird. You know, it really spoke to me uh, when I was getting into Magic. Yeah, kind of in the in the long arc of Magic history, it was also a, a pretty weird time for us to start playing. So we started back some at some point during onslaught block i don't know exactly where we started in there or what sets had come out but we started playing in onslaught uh and then of course came mirrodin and then kamigawa um and onslaught was the last block uh for a while where magic took place on the plane of dominaria so up until this point in the game's history all of magic sort of fit within um well, nearly all. Don't forget about Homelands and Old Grotha. <laughs> nearly all. Nearly all. Almost all of it was on Dominaria uh, and, you know, kind of fit into these uh, themes that were very familiar to the game, uh, particular tribes that people had a lot of fondness for. Uh, and then we kind of came into the game right as they were jumping away from that and going to these strange new worlds like Mirrodin, like Kamigawa, uh, like Ravnica. Um and just kind of looking back on that that now, it's, you know, we sort of missed out on this whole era of magic because, you know, we would have been like five back then. Yeah. Uh, we missed out on this whole era of magic where, you know, things were all happening in this one thematic space. And then we came in right as things started to get weird. Well, and Dominaria is like, it has like a tech edge to it, but it's fairly like classic kind of high fantasy in a lot of ways. Right. Um, and, you know, and it kind of veers between high and low fantasy and there's some tech stuff with Urza and Mishra and building mechs and so on. But in a lot of ways, it's pretty classic fantasy. And then you go to Mirrodin and it's like almost sci-fi. And then you go to Kamigawa and it's like this, like a dark Japanese folklore story. Like that kind of huge thematic jump from set to set was so exciting to me as someone getting into the game. I think particularly someone coming in from uh, Pokemon and then Yu-Gi-Oh, you know, all of which are, uh, they're, they're fine enough games, but um, you know, the way Magic played with mechanical depth so much from set to set and with like kind of thematic depth and world building was just really exciting to me. Yeah, yeah, it was a, a cool time for us to jump into this game. I'll also say, I think this is maybe the prettiest block in the history of Magic from an art perspective. I mean, almost every piece of art in this set is weird or fantastical or um just beautifully rendered there's a few duds of course but for the most part this this must have the highest percentage of hits for me art wise maybe in the entire game yeah the the art in this set is is so good uh and 
you know, if, if only we could be showing all of you the cards as we're looking at them. Uh, but you know, we're, we're probably going to say a lot, just go look at this card, go look at this art. And it really will be worth it because if you're not familiar with, uh, the set and with the cards in it, um, there are some true gems here. Particularly the spirit designs or the Kami designs are so fantastical and so strange. You know, they can, they play with concepts of horror. They play with, um, just like, I don't even know. I don't. I don't know if it was really strong art direction or if the artist just ran wild. But every Kami looks totally unique. Very few of them fall into traditional kind of humanoid or monster type body types. They're all, you know, there's co- huge floating collections of eyeballs and purple masses. There's like yep. scaly law tablet lizard creature. Like it's, I don't. It's hard to even describe them. You just have to see them. Yeah, and and as cool as they were and are. Uh... You know, that's probably also part of the reason why this set uh, struggled to, yeah, you know, really be very much of a hit because, like, these are just some some really weird cards. A lot of them have really strange and unfamiliar names, really strange art, uh, and thematically, it's it's a a weird set that does not really fit in with most of the rest of Magic. Yeah, I think the other thing that really uh, doomed it was um, this is one of the weakest sets in the game's history, certainly one of the weakest sets in the modern era, uh, modern border era. Um, and the reason for that is pretty simple. Kamigawa was punished for Mirrodin's sin. So the block before this, Mirrodin, um, is one of the most powerful sets uh, in the history of Magic. It had one of the most broken standard environments in the history of Magic. Um, and the game was shedding players particularly competitive players who at this time Wizards cared about a lot more than they do now uh, at a really tremendous clip because it was just really not fun. Um, and so they they backpedaled tremendously with Kamigawa on power and I, they went so far in the other direction that I think it, it hurt sales even more. You know, players, um, players complain about power creep, but they hate weak sets even more. And I think, I, I think honestly, more than the thematic stuff, I think it was the fact that a lot of these cards are weak and just didn't make much of a splash that they really sealed the doom of Kamigawa. Although there are tremendously powerful cards kind of hidden in here. There's all kinds of gems in here that are still played in EDH um, and eternal formats to this day. You know, I, I think that building a cube in particular uh, is a really cool way to highlight the cards that are not just dogs in this set. Yeah. And to, you know, kind of recreate and relive some of the uh, really cool ideas and themes that were explored here. Um Building a cube gives us a chance to kind of curate all of these cards into the ones that are not just, you know, meaningful and nostalgic and fun for us, but that would be uh, interesting to kind of play with and experiment with um, and, you know, play in this kind of limited format of Kamigawa, give these cards a chance to play against other cards that are, are not as uh, strong and just hopefully give them a chance to shine. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, uh, let's move on and talk about the uh, Impab rating system that we're going to use to make sense of the hundreds and hundreds of cards that we'll be discussing over the course of the block. All right, so I'll be introducing our patent-eligible Impab rating system. Impab, which is, of course, a word we made up, stands for Instacut, Meh, Playable, Auto-Include, and Build-Around. So I'll say just a little bit about each of those. Uh, Instacut pretty much speaks for itself. Uh, These cards are either really, really weak, 
which is true of a lot of cards in Kamigawa, or uh, maybe they're just way too specific for the cube and you know just aren't really going to find a place, aren't really going to shine. Uh, so these cards we're just going to cut right away. We're not going to be looking back at them at any later point. Yeah, and I'd say a lot of times the big sin of these cards is just that they're boring. You know, they're like a lot of them. It's just the cards that you're not, you're never going to be excited to see in the packs. You're never going to be excited to include in your deck. They're just kind of, meh. And we may be just a little bit biased um, about cards that we were never excited to see in packs <laughs> way back in the day. So those are the Instacuts. M stands for meh. So these cards aren't good, but they're not necessarily awful. You know, there may be a place for them here and there. So they're not so terrible that you never want to see them come up in the queue, but usually not that great. Uh, so we may revisit these at some point down the line as we're sort of refining and shaping the cube. We may find we need more cards of this type or less cards of this type. So they're not quite instacuts, but they're not great. P stands for playable. Um, so these are cards that are generally playable in most circumstances. Uh, they're usually pretty all-around solid cards um, that could, you know, find a place in many different types of decks, or, you know, maybe they're really good in a particular kind of deck that we're trying to uh, encourage in the cube. Um, so playable cards are playable. Uh, A stands for auto-include. So these are, uh, of course, the cards that we know we want to include in the cube. Um, so these cards might be particularly iconic. Uh, for the story or the flavor of a set. Um, but usually they are going to be in there because they're really, really good. Uh, or they represent kind of a particular archive, or not archive, archetype that we know we want to see uh, in the cube. So a lot of auto-includes uh, in Kamigawa in particular, I think, are not going to be uh, the kind of bombs that you would see printed nowadays. Um, and it'll be important to kind of keep in mind as we're going through this set that the power level in Kamigawa is very, very different from what we see in Magic today. So what we may rate an auto-include now uh, would probably not be one uh, if it was printed in a modern set. Yeah, like a, I would say a two-mana 2-2 two -two with a minor upside ability for this era is like probably would be right at playable. Like the, the bar for power is, is set pretty low. Yeah, yeah, that, that might be somewhere between playable and auto-include for me. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not that bad. Uh, and then last but not least, uh, and probably most interestingly, we have B for build around. Um, so this is kind of the trickiest category in our very sophisticated system. Um, these cards are, you know, some often the, the fun, kind of weird, maybe Johnny type cards uh, that could be pretty powerful in the exact right circumstance. Or, or they might be just an interesting card to have in the cube, something we think we may want to try out, something that could be the centerpiece of a particular kind of deck. They're sort of in there as uh, cards that may need to be revisited later on as the cube gets uh, you know, revised and looked at, and we figure out whether we can actually build a deck around these cards. Yeah, I think of these as the kind of cards that send you on on sort of a mini quest in the draft. You know, you see them come around, you maybe a couple picks in, and you go, oh, this is really pushing me towards Samurai. Like, can I make that deck work? You know, th those kind of cards that help give drafters um, an idea where to go or maybe send them down a fun path they wouldn't otherwise have taken. Yeah, I like that. And those probably are some of the first build-around cards we're going to see are some Samurai. That, That's right. Yeah, you know, make today. you, hopefully would make you think when you're drafting them, hmm, maybe... 
maybe I want to uh, make a samurai deck here. Aside from our impab rating system, we're also going to be considering uh, which cards should maybe have multiple copies in the cube. Um, and this is going to be something that's a little bit tricky and something that will need to be, you know, definitely refined as we go through this whole process. Uh, but we are, you know, considering the idea of having multiple copies of many cards show up in the cube, uh, you know, both to encourage particular archetypes to emerge uh, and because some cards are just going to be ones that we want to see more of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I should say, you know, some, some cubes uh, draft set cubes in particular are designed to simulate a, a retail draft environment. So for example, you'll see cubes where it's like, we're including four of every common, two of every uncommon, one of every rare and one of every mythic. Um, we're not setting that up uh, this cube up that way. Um, we intend it to be a little more, I guess, opinionated than that. You know, there's cards we just dislike that we're just not going to include. Um, there's other cards that we might weigh more heavily just because we think they're fun. Um, you know, a simple example might be we're going to talk about Isamaru Hound of Kanda, which is like a staple white weenie card. You know, he's a rare, but he might get in here multiple times as an example. So we're, we're playing fairly fast and loose with the multiples, and we're not going to look as closely at rarity on this um, as you'd see in a traditional set cube. Right. So one other thing we want to mention about the cube is that we uh, have it posted on Cube Cobra. So it's up there for everybody to see and to kind of follow along as we talk about all these cards and rate them. So after each episode, we'll be going in there and updating that list of cards uh, with the ratings um, based on the impact system, uh, except for the Instacuts, which are just going to disappear after every episode. Um, so we would love uh, for all of you to follow along as we kind of put this cube together, cut cards, rate cards. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, we you know, would love to hear from you uh, on your thoughts, maybe your ratings for some of the cards that we're talking about. Yeah, or cards that are coming up. If you know a favorite card's coming and you, you want to try to put your thumb on the scales, like feel free. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and we'll be, like I said, we'll be updating that after each episode and a link to that will be in the show notes. Mm -hmm. And uh, just a little bit on the logistics of how we, uh, how we implement this system. So we've each gone through a spoiler list of each card in the set and we've rated them independently. So we're each coming in blind as to what the other person said. And then um, part of the fun here is finding out, oh, wow, you had that at playable. I think that's an Instacut and then and sorting that through together. And then we'll land together on a final rating, which is the one um, that we'll tag the cards with on Cube Cobra. So I think without uh, further ado, we should just jump into the white cards of Kamigawa. Our very first card of Kamigawa block, Blessed Breath. So Blessed Breath is a single W for an instant arcane. So it's an instant with the arcane subtype. And it says, target creature you control gains protection from the color of your choice until end of turn. And you can splice it onto arcane for a W. Uh, and what splice onto arcane does, uh, if you don't know, is as you play an arcane spell, you may reveal this card from your hand and may pay its splice cost. If you do, add this card's effects to that spell. So basically, you can join this spell onto another spell, in this case, for a single W. So it's a W, give something protection, or you can tack it onto another arcane spell for a single W. Ah, uh, this is an interesting card to start with because it shows off a lot of what's weird and wonderful about Kamigawa Block and also shows some of the like serious nerfing, serious um, powering down that happened with Kamigawa Block um, that we're just going to see continue <laughs> definitely through all the white cards uh, in the set. For sure. This uh, this felt like a really 
underwhelming card to, to be starting with. I mean, it, it lets us introduce a couple of, uh, you know, Kamigawa specific keywords and mechanics, but just to me, really, really unexciting. Yeah, let's uh, maybe let's just get our ratings out there, and then we can we can talk about why. So I have this down as a meh, uh, and probably in a single copy. I don't think this is terrible. Like protection is fine; it can fizzle a removal spell, it can let you chip in for some damage, and having splice is actually kind of interesting because you could you know chain this two or three times over a couple of turns. You know, maybe get some decent value out of it. I don't think it's totally uh, unplayable. Yeah, and it it is nice that the splice is you know, just one mana that's, it's not like you're having to hold a lot open to be able to get your blessed breath value in. Yeah, actually, I, I think I heard you snicker just a little bit at the name. And I feel like we do have to uh, have to talk about that. The name of this is funny. It's really hard to say blessed breath. Every time I say it, I just like I'm stumbling. Uh, and then the art is incredible. It's like this, I don't know what I'd call him, like a kind of moth priest figure, raising his arms in the air, and then just breathing out this cloud of yellow gas. It's a pretty extraordinary picture, which is going to be a theme through this set is almost every piece of art is at least solid. And in many cases, just exceptional in one way or another. Yeah. He kind of, uh, I assume this is a commie that we're looking at that's doing this. He kind of has some uh, tentacle looking things coming out of his tentacle arms also, but yeah, great. I gave this a meh also. I feel, and, and maybe just a single copy. I feel like this, you know, could have a place in a spirit focused deck uh it's not gonna break the game at all um but yeah it could be fun yeah i think the other thing we're gonna find out through playtesting is like do the colors work out for this right um you know i want to have some splice synergies in there for sure it's a cool mechanic it's an iconic mechanic i'm not sure that the white cards are where we're gonna find the decent splice effects and so it could end up that this is just a little too orphaned you know if there just aren't enough decent white cards white arcane uh, spells to, to splice onto. And they kind of have to be instances, the other thing, right? Like splicing this onto a sorcery is fine, but not definitely not as good as splicing onto an instant. This, this card really, you know, I think highlights how parasitic the mechanics in this set are. You know, that's, yeah, you'll, Mark Rosewater uses this term a lot when he's talking about Kamigawa block. Uh, the idea of parasitic mechanics, meaning that they cannot be used and don't have any meaningful application outside of just this one set uh, and splice and arcane are just the perfect example of that because obviously splice as a mechanic just does nothing if you don't have arcane spells and arcane itself is you know this uh, kind of tag that you put on a sorcery and or an instant that has appeared in no other set besides kamigawa uh, it doesn't appear in the block before miradin or the block after ravnica uh, there aren't that many spirits in Mirrodin for sure. There's maybe a few, you know, hanging around, hanging out in Ravnica, but th this card is just useless outside of Kamigawa. Yeah, it, it is kind of an orphaned uh, mechanic for sure. I was actually wondering, you know, Splice itself is, is such an interesting mechanic and I'm fascinated that they've never returned to it. And really outside of a lower one block, they haven't returned to the idea of um, instance uh, and sorceries having subtypes until I think Strixhaven had a little bit. But it's fascinating that there's this whole pretty adventurous avenue of design that they opened with Kamigawa that never really has been reopened. Uh, even just today, we'll be seeing, you know, quite a quite a lot of adventurous designing and, you know, cool mechanics and sort of uh, experimentation from magic that you definitely hadn't seen before this set. And I, I kind of wonder how much the company looked at this set after its... Uh, 
not that great commercial success and said and wondered you know if these parasitic mechanics and these sort of wild ideas being put out there were just too much right yeah i am remembering that in modern horizons there were two or three instances with splice on instant or sorcery um including the punerific yeah the, the best one is splicer's skill which references the splicers that interact with golems in uh, Mirrodin, and so it's a splicer skill. It creates an art, a golem token, and it splices on instant or sorcery, which someone in uh, R and D just had a had a wonderful pun field day with that. So they revisited it in a tiny, tiny way, but but very little for a mechanic that seems so versatile and interesting. Like I don't know why splice on instant and sorcery hasn't just become a mechanic they return to over and over. Yeah, for sure. All right, I think I think we've probably managed the world's longest conversation about blessed breath. You ready to move we, on? We have a, a final rating, meh. Yeah, we, we both said meh, so this is a meh. Solid meh. Okay, let's move on to um, our first samurai, Bushi Tenderfoot slash Kenzo the Hard-Hearted. This is a flip card. Um, so it's it's hard to describe, kind of hard to describe what this card looks like if you're not familiar with the Kamigawa flip cards. This card and every other flip card has its art in the center of the card. One text box above that art and a separate text box below that art. In this case, each of those text boxes representing a different creature. So when you play this card, it comes in as one of those creatures. And when a certain condition is met, you flip this card over, you sort of turn it 180 degrees, and it becomes the becomes the creature on the other end of the card. Here's what Bushi Tenderfoot does. Uh, it's one white mana for a 1-1 one, one human soldier. When a creature dealt damage by Bushi Tenderfoot this turn is put into a graveyard, flip Bushi Tenderfoot. You flip him over and you get Kenzo the Hard-Hearted, who is a legendary human samurai, 3-4, uh, with double strike and Bushido 2. And since this is our first Bushido card, I'll go ahead and read that out too. Bushido says when this blocks or becomes blocked, it gets plus 2, plus 2 until end of turn. Um, so there's a whole lot packed into this card, a whole lot of Kamigawa-specific goodness. Really cool card. A lot of one-off mechanics here, and our first samurai also. Yeah, I, I almost feel like we need a little pressy for people. So that that's a one-mana, one-one, that if it kills the thing without dying, flips into a 3-4 with double strike and Bushido 2. Correct. Oof. What's your take on this card? Because I love this guy. I mean, I think it's super cool. It tells a story. You know, he he turns from just the the humble soldier into the badass super samurai um, guy. But I, I actually think this card is is stone unplayable. I don't think it could make the cut. Yeah, I think he is really terrible. But I have I have such a soft spot for this card because I you know so many of these cards I remember actually getting them in packs, trying to make decks out of them, trying to make them work. And this is just a perfect example of a card where I wanted it to work so bad. You know, you have this 1-1 one, one where if you can just get him to deal damage, deal enough damage to a creature to put it into a graveyard and prevent him from dying at the same time, then you get this 3-4, you know, double-striking Bushido 2 awesome legendary samurai. It felt like if I could just figure out the right combination, this card would be so great. But it's not so great. It's, I think, a pretty terrible card. Yeah, it is worth noting. I mean, the flip is pretty great. A 3-4 double strike is already pretty solid, and you add Bushido 2. Um, that's a that's a really strong body, especially by this set's standards, where we're going to see there's... I mean, there's a lot of five-mana 2-2s in the set. <laughs> Kenzo the Hard-Hearted, if you somehow flip this, is a is a really powerful uh, guy. Yeah, it's the somehow if you flip it part that's a little tricky. <laughs> 
Yeah, and I, I did some digging on that. So this guy's at a minimum, you got to get him up to two toughness, right? Because it's a one one. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I guess there's like a hand, there's like a zero one in the set that we're going to talk about in a little bit. But unless your opponent's about decides to throw their zero one pointlessly under Bushi Tenderfoot's tender feet, basically you have to at least boost his toughness to two. And by my count, there's only 21 cards in the whole block that can do that, many of which are terrible. One of which is Umizawa's Jite, which I don't think we can put in the cube because it will break the cube in half. So like I I just don't know if we even have the tools to make this guy this guy work. Yeah, I I really wish I really I was I was trying to think of anything that might buff samurai, and then I realized Bushi Tenderfoot isn't even a samurai yet. He hasn't he hasn't had that training. He He's just a soldier. He hasn't proven himself on the battlefield. No, he he doesn't have that armor. He doesn't have that katana. So you can't even rely on samurai buffs, of which there are surprisingly few in mm. this set. Anyway, mm. that said, you know I like I've always loved this and pretty much all of the flip cards. One of the interesting things that Mark Rosewater has said about these flip cards is that they are really great for storytelling. You know, there's a very clear story being played out by this card. You have this you know young untrained untested tenderfoot soldier um who i love once that he, name tenderfoot. it's, it's a great so name. evocative um and you know once he gets that experience on the battlefield once he you know defeats his first opponent however you want to put it then he becomes this you know hard-hearted great warrior legendary samurai so there's a lot of storytelling that's happening in this card but they just because of the layout of the card and the physical limitations of a magic card there's very little space to include both good art and very much rules text. So all of the flip cards have really very little rules text on them and very little space for that many abilities or that much interesting stuff going on them. They obviously don't have any space for flavor text. You, you can't call them anything but cramped. You just look at it and there's, there's right. so much text that every, the, the rules text is, or the, um, the rules text box is tiny the art is tiny, and because there's two figures in the art, like each piece, each figure in the art is like literally a postage stamp or smaller. Like it's just they're very cramped, and they just hadn't. I think a hadn't thought of the idea of physically flipping a card over, in terms of how you would make that playable from a design perspective. Like checklist cards and sleeves weren't as common back then. There were all these mechanical things, and then also I think they literally couldn't print them and collate mm-hmm. cards correctly for a true flip card. And so they they tried to do it with these, and I. I can see why it's been a one-off experiment. Like Splice, I feel like there's a lot you could return to, but once you think of the idea of an actual flip card where you physically flip the card over and there's room to breathe, uh, there's no reason to revisit this. Yeah, there's no no reason to come back to this. I don't think we mentioned before, but you you alluded to there being two figures in this art. The art for this card and all of the flip cards, the, the box that the artwork is contained in is already smaller than it is on a normal Magic card. And then you have this kind of split canvas going on where on the left half of it, if you're looking at the card right side up, the left half is, you know, artwork associated with the top part of the card. And then the right hand side, uh, which is upside down from this perspective is associated with the bottom part of the card. So you're flipping not just the rules text, but the art as well, or the the part of the art that you're sort of focusing on. Um, So they're very, very strange looking cards. Yeah, the other the other challenge of flip cards um, is, as Mark Rosewater mentions in his uh, podcast, there's a serious playability issue because once you tap them, tap a magic card, it starts to get a little bit messy to kind of read the board and understand: mm-hmm. is this mm-hmm. currently a Bushi Tenderfoot? Is this a Kenzo the Hard Hearted? You know, if you have a chaotic evil opponent who you know taps to the left, <laughs> then all 
you know, <laughs> all bets are off. But even without that, it, it je- it's really easy to create a memory issue and a feel bad or like just you know, some really awkward play moments from just, just manipulating these cards on the battlefield or sure. holding it in your hand, having to flip the card upside down to read what the other side does. It's a little yeah. bit of a tell. <laughs> if you can't remember what it does. Yeah. Um, so, so where do you land on Kenzo, the hard-hearted, and Bushi Tenderfoot? I have him as an instacut, which feels harsh. I, I'm willing to go up if we want to give him a shot, although I just don't know if he can make the big leagues. You know, I, I put him down as meh, and I, I think I'm going to stick to meh a little bit because I, I don't know off the top of my head how many one-mana creatures we have in this set, but I suspect it's not all that many. Working on it. Just because he's a one mana one one who could possibly be do like be doing something, I'm gonna stick to meh. There are 29 one drops in this block, including seven white ones. No, eight white ones. Uh, some of okay. which are are bad. Okay. Well, well this, none of which this are actually the, this worse. This is than one this. of the bad ones. But <laughs> not, none of which are are worse than his front face. To be honest with is you, is he the worst? Is he the worst? Just looking purely at his front face. Probably not. Uh, yeah, probably yes. Um, yes, yes, he is. But I, you know, I'm willing to still give him a mag. You, you know, know let's we put him into the cube. He, he never gets drafted. Eventually he quietly gets cut. I'm, I'm fine with that. Yeah. All right. If he never, if he never proves himself in battle, then. Then yeah, exactly. He, we'll give him a chance. We'll give exactly. him a chance. Like Bushi Tenderfoot himself was given the chance or Kenzo. I guess that we know his name. All right, let's move on to cage of hands, which is an evocative name. Cage of hands is two and a W for an enchant creature. And it says, Enchanted Creature can't attack or block. And you can pay one and a W to return Cage of Hands to its owner's hand. So it's a what we now call an Aura, a three-mana Aura. I think this card is an auto-include. I think this is likely to be one of the best pieces of removal um, in the set. I haven't gone to audit that completely. Um, but three-mana stop a thing is like a decent rate in this format because this is a really slow format. Um, as I said earlier, there are four, five, six-mana plays that will have two or three power, like, it takes a while for decks to get going. So three mana normally would be very slow, but here I think it's fine. And the fact that you can pick it back up and put it on another creature at any time and basically lock your opponent out of their best creature at any given time, I think is pretty dang good. So I, I have this as an auto-include. Yeah, I agree. I rated it playable, but I think I think auto-include's fair. I, I absolutely love the art here. Um it's something I think I've already said. We're going to keep returning to it over and over again. But the thing I really like here is they really went wild with the kind of world design and art design in Kamigawa. Um, the, the theme of Kamigawa is that the spirits have gone to war with the mortals. They really took the spirit design and they're not just like spooky ghosts or kind of dragons or these kind of classical images. They're weird. Like, so this one is hundreds of hands surrounding this beast with kind of eyeballs, like purple flat disc eyeballs floating around them. It's it's kind of, it's disturbing. It's claustrophobic and a little bit spooky and just, yeah, it, it really is evocative. And I, I love this art. Yeah, if you, if you look closely at a lot of these hands also, you know, they're, a lot of them are kind of, you know, don't have uh, kind of the typical finger orientation. There's a lot of just floating fingers kind of hanging out around the hands. Oh, you're right. Yeah, there are just some kind of fractured pieces of hand and finger. Right. Oh, yeah, it's, it's so uh, good. It's really bizarre. But I, I'll be honest with you. I like, the, I like this card art, but I always found it very confusing because to me, the thing that the cage of hands is around. Oh, I had the same thoughts. Yeah, I think we're going the same direction. Go. Yeah, looking at it now, I think it's probably an Oni. 
which would be maybe part of the mortal world oh. in the Kamigawa lore. But it, it looks like this. my gut reaction, my first reaction when I saw this card years and years ago was that this was a Kami. Or nothing. It kind of just doesn't look like anything in Kamigawa to me. No, it looks it, more like it really a just beast. Yeah, just sort of a, you know, ambiguous beast huh. that would appear in another set. But, you know, I, my, I was very confused by this card at first because it looked like some spirits trapping another spirit. And I, I found that confusing, but... Well, I mean, yeah. it can it can trap another spirit, which is unusual. I'm almost surprised it doesn't say enchanted enchant non spirit creature or something <laughs> like that. But maybe they didn't have that technology back then before you know ours worked a little bit differently. Hmm. Uh, the artist here is Mark Tadeen, who goes all the way back to Alpha with pieces like Chaos Orb, Time Twister, Time Vault, Soul Ring, um, and he's continued with Magic right you know up to the present day. Uh, more recent pieces that are iconic are like Umrockle, the Aeon's Torn, which I guess isn't that recent, but I've been playing Magic for a while and it feels like that's yesterday. Yeah, really, uh, really great piece of art from one of Magic's great artists. Yeah. But on playability, so it sounds uh, you're not all the way to auto include, but you definitely think this is playable. Yeah, I, I, at least playable. I, 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 so you have this as a single. I think I didn't actually put a number in, but I feel like this is like a um, maybe something we'd run two of. Like I think removals can be pretty scarce in the format, and this seems like a good kind of slower yeah. removal option to have access to. Yeah, I'd be fine with saying two of this to start with. All right. Anything else to say about Cage Cage of Hands? Uh, no, I think we've uh, handled it pretty thoroughly. <laughs> okay, great. Okay, let's go to Call to Glory. This is 1W for an instant. It says, untap all creatures you control, samurai you control, get plus one, plus one until end of turn. Um, this is our first samurai synergy card. Uh, the art on here shows uh, just basically a bunch of samurai just charging right at the viewer. Um, and they're all getting plus one, plus one. So we we had pretty divergent ratings for this yeah, card. Yeah, I think I'm wrong, to be honest. I have this as playable. I'll expose my my vulnerable flank. Thank you for that, um, because I gave it an insta-cut. Mm-hmm. I feel like this, given, given the number of samurai that anyone is likely to have in play at any given moment, giving them all plus one, plus one for one turn for two mana doesn't feel all that great. And that's assuming you have any samurai. If you don't, all this is doing is untapping all creatures you control. So maybe that could be a nice way, a nice little combat trick of, you know, swinging in and then a surprise blocking your opponent on their next attack. Well, I'm, I'm going to untap myself and give myself plus one, plus one and coming in the defense of this card, because I think it's a little better than just like kind of a nice trick. I mean, don't you feel like there's some blowout potential here? Like you, you, you really get them where you... See now I'm already struggling. But how much? I, I mean, how much do you get them? You got four samurai in play, and you get like that's you know that's best case scenario. I feel like I guess I'm focused more on the un untap all creatures you control part, like the ability uh -huh. to kind of blow out on defense. I think the problem is I'm thinking about is like uh, to me that sounds like I'm describing a parity board state, you know, where you and your opponent are kind of equally stalled, and I feel like in that situation you're not swinging out anyway. And your right. opponent isn't swinging out. So maybe it's not good. I mean, if you combine this with hold the line, which we'll get to a little bit later, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it, it could be a real blowout. <laughs> if you have we have to combine this with hold mana. the line to make this good, then I don't think this makes the grade. 
Yeah, I mean, I'd I'd maybe be willing to go up to Meh on this just because I like Samurai. Maybe but, just throw in one and see if it ever yeah, why don't if we it does say something. Single and Meh. Yeah, I feel like yeah, I think a single Meh is fine because I I think we're going to be trying stuff out, and the early draft of the cube is going to be rough, and there there will be this you know honing process, and we'll find out the call to glory is OP, or or more likely that it, it's terrible. Yeah, we'll find out. We'll see who's right. Great. Any anything more to say about Call to Glory? Uh, I had it in a samurai deck way back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember it ever making any difference for me. I was going to say this can help Bushi Tenderfoot, but of course it can. He's not a samurai. He's a no, soldier. he's not a samurai. Uh, brutal. All right. Let's talk about Candles Glow, a card I had never seen until we did these ratings. Um, one and a W for an instant arcane. Prevent the next three damage that would be dealt to target creature or player this turn. You gain one life for each damage prevented this way. And you can splice it onto Arcane for one and W. So two mana, prevent up to three damage, gain that much life, and you can splice it. I had this as an Instacut, and I sneakily changed it to a build around. Because I, I, I think this card is almost certainly terrible. But I think there's a chance this card is actually kind of annoying, and you could build a deck almost around a bunch of candles glows, a bunch of other stally kind of instants and sorceries and just like stall your opponent out of the game um, and bore them to death. Like, I don't know exactly how you win in that scenario, but I, I feel like there's maybe some playability hidden, hidden inside this card. Am I nuts? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I guess the question is, do we want that to be represented in the queue? You know, okay. I, yes, I think... I'm, I'm going to answer that firmly. Yes, because okay. I think part of the to me, uh, uh, part of the hmm. uh, like, there's cards in this era that are tough and that are frustrating and create weird board states, and I think we have to nod at that. I think we totally cut it. We're we're not doing justice to it. Okay, that's not sold. That's fair. That's <laughs> fair. But I, uh, hmm. yeah, I get. I, mean, I could I could actually kind of see candles glow maybe in a deck with. Maybe if you if you're able to get some, the Honbin, some Honbin in there, you know, uh-huh, you get the white uh-huh. Honbin, which gives you life every turn, and then maybe you've got one or t- one or two other colors uh-huh, in uh-huh. there as well. Then you're just sort of we we got ethereal up. haze coming up. That's like a fog effect. Yeah, like, yeah. There you go. Wait, actually, that doesn't work because it'll prevent the damage. So never you get, mind. You get some of this uh, protection from color in there. Hmm. Uh, some of the great tapping effects that we're gonna get coming up later uh-huh. <laughs> i'm trying trying to help you here you're, you're trying to help me and i'm talking so uh, this is actually making me think so one of the i think one of the problems i'm facing and that we will face continually is like this is a really depowered set yes like cards in kamigawa are really weak like really really weak by modern magic standards but they were weak even by the standards standards of the time and so I think it's going to make it tricky, particularly in the early stages to evaluate cards. Yeah. And I'm not saying that this card is great, but I do think it might be like in this, this very slow, very grindy format. This, this might, there might be something you can do with it. That's interesting. As I'm looking at it more and looking at it, especially as potentially a six, you know, six point life swing for two mana and something that you can splice, you know, this annoying thing you can keep around. Uh, if you have some arcane spells, yeah, I think we should cut it in or keep it in. Well, <laughs> See, I think a little should... Freudian, a little Freudian <laughs> slip there. 
Okay, let me. I want to talk about the art in a second, but let me push you just a little bit further because I also feel like if this goes in, it should be like three x or four x. Like I feel like you need a lot of copies. I think basically we should flood the cube, have it be twenty (laughs) percent copies of Candles Glow. I mean, not really, but I almost feel like you need a lot of them to see if this can work. Mm -hmm. Because I think one of these is like, eh, why? Like you almost need to build a terrible deck around it for it to work. Yeah. Um, well, then why don't we just go whole hog and put four in? Four copies of Candle Four Glow. copies of Candle. As a, it's first, a build around. It's the a build first around, Kimigawa right? cube with four copies of Candle's Glow. <laughs> the, the first pile of magic cards that was not bulk <laughs> that has four copies of Candle's Glow. We're breaking new ground here. We really are. All right, so we need to pay extra attention to every other arcane instant that we see coming up in white <laughs> as yes. something that Candle's Glow could be spliced onto. Yes. Um, do you have anything to say about the art? I kind of like, so let me describe it. It's, um, I guess I would describe it as kind of a, a moon or a sun. that's like a yellow, it's like a yellow molten ball with a freaky face surrounded by floating candles in a cloud of lightning. And there's also fireballs. Um, mm-hmm. I guess. Uh, I I don't think I like this art. It's definitely striking and sort of unforgettable. I don't really know how this prevents damage either. Like I, I the, the term candles glow kind of sounds like it would prevent damage. It sounds cozy. This art though is like anything but cozy. It's kind of horrific. It definitely doesn't look like it's preventing damage. I don't know it's it's profoundly strange. It's it's really confusing art. All, like to me, this whatever whatever this angry face in the middle is, it looks like a moon or a sun. It's like the man in the moon is being like melted down. Yes. And he's very upset about it, which raises this question. <laughs> this is an arcane arcane spell, right? So this is a, a spell being cast by the spirits, the spirit world. Yes. And it, it in that case, these spirit candles are surrounding what, you know, I wasn't sure on Cage of Hands, but I'm pretty sure whatever this guy is in the middle of this art is a spirit. Oh, you think he's suffering? I feel like he's, he he's seems the to be. magic. I think he's the one working the magic or it, why is he I so suppose. angry and how is he preventing it? De- I was, see, I kind of, the way I look at this, these candles are surrounding this guy. Oh, they've kind of caged this guy around, in. Yeah. It looks oh. like they've sort of caged him in They're uh-huh. You know, they're blocking the damage that he's trying to deal. Yes. Well, okay, so what if his face is being distorted by the magical field? Like, we aren't really seeing his features. We're seeing the, like, the spirit's view of it. He's, his human features distorted by their magic. Interesting. Okay, I, Alan Polak, if you're listening, get in touch. We want to understand what's going on in Candle's Glow. Um, We're going to put four of them in. It's going to be great. It's going to work. <laughs> You'll love it. Okay. Uh, that was a good Candles Glow discussion. Let's go to Clean Fall. This is 2W for an arcane, or sorcery arcane. I always want to say arcane sorcery. It's it's much more natural, isn't it? It, it is. Uh, and it says destroy all enchantments. Um, so this is some big time enchantment hate in white, which you know I think is the color where it belongs, but uh, I don't think that this card belongs in the cube. I gave it a, a meh. Yeah, I gave it an Instacut. This is like a double Instacut for me because A, I think it's terrible. Um, But also B, I think it's kind of like miserable. Like if there is some enchantment deck, (coughs) Hondans, lurking in the cube, like I don't want a card that dunks this hard on somebody. Like this just, 
This just yeah. feels too brutal and too too obnoxious. Yeah. Great art though. Oh, the art the art on this is is amazing. It's like uh, well, you describe it. So, we were sort of looking out on the plains like the P L A I N S of Kamigawa. Um and these spirit kind of worm sea serpent dragon dragon looking things are hovering over it uh, and they've got these symbols kind of uh, drifting and trailing down from them as they fly over the landscape and you can see that the in their wake the land is turning golden yellow and i guess they're sort of sweeping the land of all of these enchantments or all of this magic however you want to conceive of it but it's just really really beautiful colors really cool art it's amazing. It is kind of weird because I feel like destroy all enchantments to me feels hostile. Right. More. And this is like a purification act. Well, and also the Kami in this are supposed to be kind of, you know, unfriendly. I don't know. It, it it feels like not totally in sync, the art and the mechanic to me. I mean, I can see how it's a cleansing. It's just, I guess I think of this as a more a hostile cleansing than a, a friendly purple dragon worm cleansing. Yeah, they do look very friendly. They really do. I like, they, they're almost huggable. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny to me this is printed at Uncommon. I mean, I guess you couldn't print it at higher rarity because, boy, would that be miserable to open. But also, this must have clogged a lot of sealed and draft uh, pools back in the day. I mean, I just, I can't imagine this was playable. This is just terrible. Yeah. I, I always like to read the gatherer comments for these uh, old cards. It's one of the great things about old cards is there still were gatherer comments before they locked them down. Um, and somebody pointed out a cube combo with this. That's just great. Um, so you run Enchanted Evening, which turns all permanents into enchantments. And you run Avacyn, Angel of Hope, which makes all your permanents indestructible. And then you clean fall and you wipe your opponent's board. So for just 16 mana and three cards, boom, that's it. You, ju- you just totally dunk on your opponent. OP. So I really hope someone has done that at some point in history, because that would be pretty cool. <laughs> I, w- I wonder if the whoever left that comment has ever pulled that off. Yeah, this is also a funny example. Like, There's been this trend of green getting to do things white. Uh, gets to do but better and or cheaper um and this effect was later printed in green for 1g so i I feel kind of bad for white that it's cool weird card with the purple worms got just dunked on well that's kind of kamigawa for you though (laughs) (laughs) yeah sure it's so do you you have this as a med you really think this is a med i feel like this is just an instacut no i think it's an instacut okay but maybe we print out the art and glue it to the box yeah i suspect a lot of the a lot of the mez that I've given cards in this set are, uh, it just comes down to the art and me not wanting to say goodbye. Let's talk about Devoted Retainer. Um, 1W for a 1-1 human samurai. And he's got Bushido 1. So just a one mana 1-1 that gets bigger if he's blocked or becomes blocked. Um, So I gave this guy a meh. I think he's fine. You know, he's not terrible. Uh, the problem, I think the big problem this guy faces is like, yeah, he gets bigger if he gets blocked, but because he's a 1-1, like, who cares? Your opponent's just going to not block him and take the damage until they have a creature that's bigger than him with Bushido, and then they'll let it die. Um, I, I don't... He, he's he's pretty bad, honestly. Yeah, yeah, he's not great. Um, I feel like this also kind of highlights how a lot of the samurai just kind of by nature of the way that Bushido works are, I think, much stronger defensively than they are offensively. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, devoted retainer when he's blocking is always going to be at least a two-two. Mm-hmm. Um, attacking your opponent's pretty much always going to let him just stay at his vanilla power toughness, and you know, a one man a one-one is not great, but we're going to see some other samurai later on in white that are just, you know, ridiculously underpowered for their mana cost. Mm-hmm. But they have Bushido that could bring them up to a power toughness that would make sense for what their cost had. <laughs> but your <laughs> opponent is never going to do that. You know, that if you're just attacking, they're they're going to take the vanilla damage. They're not going to let you buff your guy by blocking him and, you know, get in a trade that's not going to be favorable for them. I I have Devoted Retainer as playable and f- having four copies of it, mostly for the reason that I feel like we need to try him out in there and mm-hmm, to see, mm-hmm. you know, what our one drops look like, how many one drops we're going to need in this cube, given, you know, given how slow Kamigawa is, but also how weak a lot of cards are. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like we may need some decent one, one representation and this one's not great, but he does something. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that's, uh, I, I think there's something to that. It's interesting. There's there's some good Reddit posts from people over the years uh, who've built Kamigawa cubes. And one of them somewhere says, this is going to sound strange, but you need to make sure that you don't let the aggro deck run away with, with things, even as bad as the aggro creatures are. And I, I believe what they meant yeah. by that is this format is so slow that just playing a thing on turn one is actually kind of impactful uh, mm-hmm. because there's not that many like decent two or three drop creatures or one drop, like, Right. This is a super slow format. And so, yeah, maybe maybe there is a white weenie deck and it doesn't care that Devoted Retainer is pretty bad. You know, it reminds me of like when the original Sly deck came out. So Sly is the first aggro red deck in Magic's history. Um, one of the first really aggressive decks that thinks about tempo and low mana curves um, in the history of the game. Um, and one of the things about Sly, certainly to modernize, is all the cards are terrible or all the creatures are terrible. Um, you know, Jackal Pups is the best of them. And that card uh, by modern standards looks terrible. So, so much so that um, we were playing my cube with a friend who's newer to magic and he read the card and misread it thinking it dealt the damage to your opponent instead of you because it just seemed impossible to understand. But anyway, and yet Sly was a really good deck. And the reason it was good is just because playing your cards on curve and getting in below your opponent is inherently a powerful strategy. And so maybe maybe Devoted Retainer, plus um, uh, he is going to get upstaged pretty badly by Isamaro in a bit. Um, but maybe, you know, Devoted Retainer and some of these other white one-drops, yeah, they're not amazing, but maybe he's he's okay. Okay enough. Yeah, I mean, maybe he's going to start running away with games. Yeah, I, doesn't this make you want to include Call to Glory just to cast our eyes back a little bit? You know, you get your three Devoted ret- Retainers out, you boost them, now they're two twos, maybe even three threes. Uh. Yeah, didn't didn't we we gave it a single. I'm just I'm just needling you on that. Yeah, we're we're going to put it in there. I don't know if this is quite playable to me. It's more of a mad, but um we can call it playable if you want. Let's call it playable for now. Okay. Do you really think we need 3 of these? I or 4 of these? I feel like 3 is enough. But we can Yeah, do four. I guess I guess three's, 3 3 is probably enough. He's not that exciting. Okay. Okay. Uh let's go to a much more exciting card. Eight and a half tails. WW for a legendary fox cleric, 2-2. He has two abilities. One says uh, pay one colorless and one white mana. Target permanent you control gains protection from white until end of turn. And a second ability, pay one colorless mana. Target spell or permanent becomes white until end of turn. Um, So 
just to kind of summarize all of that, uh, basically eight and a half tails lets you spend three mana to protect any permanent you have from basically any spell uh, by turning that spell white and then giving your permanent protection from white. Um, this is a really cool card, probably one of the most iconic cards from Champions of Kamigawa, certainly one of the most iconic white cards. Uh, it's fairly fairly popular in Commander, at least within Kamigawa Commanders. To me, this is a really cool like way of combining two abilities that you know kind of do something separate uh, on their own, and each one is not that special or not that interesting, but when put together, when combined, um, kind of allow you to do something that most white cards wouldn't allow you to do. Yeah, I, I love this card. Um, I love the art on this card a lot. I, I guess sure. we can come back to that in a second. Um, but yeah, I just think like as a two mana bear um, that can you know mess with combat math, mess with your opponent's removal, um, let you chip in for damage. Like this thing does a lot of work. Like I think even as a, even if you had no no abilities, um, I'd still be thinking about it just based on the uh, the decent decent ish stats and uh, really really cool art. Uh, and really cool name, also Eight and a Half Tails. That is a really cool name. It just tells a story in itself. You know, we don't know anything else about this guy, at least from the art. The flavor text is is pretty meaningless. It just says, virtue is an inner light that can prevail in every soul, which is, you know, nice, but doesn't say a whole lot. Uh, but just the name tells a story in itself and the art. It's it's really an evocative, cool card. Mm -hmm. Interesting point of difference here is you have this as a, a single copy. I've been thinking about these legends, and I feel like some of them, this is really true of Isamaru, but also Eight and a Half Tails. I actually am a 2x because I think he's just a really solid threat and there might be room to sneak two of them in i mean the odds of the same player drafts two and sees them both in a game and that's a problem i think you probably sneak two in hmm. i guess i was just sort of thinking with all the legendary cards you know it's it's legendary just mm -hmm. one one copy in there but yeah i could see some of them working with multiple copies and i think eight and a half tails is probably one of the better ones to double down on yeah i mean i suppose there's like a flavor thing there or something of like it is kind of it's definitely weird to have multiple copies of a legendary legendary creature. But I mean I don't I don't think that's really too much of a problem. You know, in a, a deck you would certainly have multiple copies of some of your legends. I'm fine with having two of this guy in. Um and you have them all the way up in auto include. I'm I'm fine saying he's in auto include, even if he goes down to one copy. I, I don't want a cube that has zero copies of eight and a half tails. This card is just too cool. There you go. I'm actually curious, did you look at all at like what what did commander decks with this card look like? I I didn't look at that at all. Um, I I didn't really. I saw that he was a popular commander. Let me look here. Interesting. So yeah, some of the cards he shows up with are like COP white. So you can kind of do, you know, you. I, it looks like a lot of them just take advantage of his second ability to make something white. So like COP white to protect you from white spells or glare of heresy, which just says to exile a white permanent. Um, Pentarch Paladin, which is a time spiral card that lets you choose a color when he comes into play and then destroy a permanent of that color. So I, it's, it looks like it's kind of this cute deck that plays off of uh, his ability to turn things white. I like that. Yeah. Don't know how good it would be, but it's fun. All right. Auto include 2x. All right. Ethereal Haze. Single W for an instant arcane. Prevent all damage that would be dealt by creatures this turn. So it's a, it's your fog effect. Um, but with arcane stapled onto it. I have this as a meh. That's probably generous. I, I think I, there's some weird pull in my heart towards uh, white cards that slow the game down and, and break your opponent's spirit. I'm, I'm seeing that. 
yeah, we're really going to see that with ghostly prison in a second here. Um, but, uh, I don't know. I mean, we could put one of these in, but, uh, it's hard to care. Yeah. I, I have no desire to put even one of these in. It's just, it's arcane fog and fog is fine. Yeah, fog is fine, but I, like there's more there's more interesting ways for white to turtle. That's true. That's true. If you're looking for white to turtle, this is a set where white really does it. You know, uh, with some pizzazz. All right, boom, Instacut. Let's move on. Get out of here. Now, this is definitely not an Instacut. Ghostly Prison. Two W for an enchantment. It says creatures can't attack you unless their controller pays two for each creature attacking you. I love this card. This is just talk about white turtling. This is such a brutal and annoying card to play against uh, and is so fun to have and so fun to frustrate your opponent with or opponents with if you're using it in commander. It is a very popular commander card, the number three card in the set. um, And it's not hard to see why. Yeah, this must be one of the most reprinted cards out of the set too. It looks like it's been reprinted uh, 13 times. Um, Yeah, this card is... This card is just such a um, such a commander staple, such an iconic card um, to me. And also, you know, even outside of commander, um, I remember playing this in a lot of decks back in the day, just as a you know as a fledgling control player. Um, and it really does work; like it really slows down your kind of tempo-y aggro decks. Um, it really, really annoys your opponent. Um, it can really save you from you know long enough to find a wrath or find some other way to stabilize. Like this card does a lot of work. It's like the the value that you get out of this, uh, just in terms of mana, I think is just insane. You know, you're spending three mana to get it out there permanently, or at least until your mm. opponent has some enchantment removal. And then within two attacks, your opponent is spending more mana just to keep doing what they want to be doing uh, than you have spent on this spell. And it just sticks around uh, and they keep paying up. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that way. I mean, obviously you're going down a card in order to do it, but like, yeah, in terms of mana value, mana advantage, um, and really like, really just forcing your opponent to make uncomfortable choices. Like you're, if you're playing this card, I was going to say you're always the defensive player, but maybe you're not. Like, even if you're not the defensive player, just your ability to force your opponent to make trade-off decisions every single turn um, between spending their mana to advance their number of things on their board and spending their mana to like, advance their ability to race uh it's really brutal especially in this set where things are quite expensive mm-hmm. you know like your opponent isn't necessarily going to have a lot of spare mana hanging around uh for quite a while because a lot of the most impactful cards are like five and six mana to get down right i have a beef with this card which is that i think the original art i'll be honest it isn't exceptional but it is iconic in my view but when they reprinted it into commander for the first time they gave it this kind of this art that's like a growling minotaur standing behind some white swords that I just... Yeah, I hate that. I art. hate that art, and it's become the, the iconic de facto art for this card, and I that bums me out. What's really frustrating is, you know, a lot of the art in Kamigawa, even if the card were to be reprinted, the art would probably need to be changed just to make it less bizarre. And less Kamigawa, yeah. Yeah, you know, honestly, like less, you know, Japanese folklore-y. Uh, but Ghostly Prison is not one of those cards. Like, this could be printed... This art could be printed in any set. Yeah, the only thing fit in just fine. The only thing kind of Kamigawa about it is there's this kind of slight pagoda roof to the right tower. But yeah, there's no reason this art had to change, and that new art is lame, and I hate it. And also, then it got another set of new art for um, I think Kaldheim Commander decks, uh, which is also pretty meh. It's still not very like I don't 
I can see why they don't think this art is amazing, but for such an iconic card, if they're not going to use the original art, then come up with some art that's like actually way better instead of okay. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Um, as far as how to, how much of this to include, I, I think this is an auto include. I think on power level, this absolutely gets there. I think on being iconic, it absolutely gets there. I do think it could be a bit oppressive. Like this card is really kind of a beating to play against. Mm-hmm. So I have this as a, as a single copy, just because I, I worry about, like, if a player gets two of these down, like, God help the aggro player, <laughs> I think the game is over. Um, and so for me, that makes it kind of a singleton, but I see you have it as a, as a 2Xer. Yeah, I guess I guess the way I had been thinking of the, you know, having multiple copies is to just sort of increase the chance that you'll come across one of them. But I think you're right that the, you know, chances are only one player is going to want to go for ghostly prison you know i guess if you were playing white you'd probably want it no matter what i feel unless you're like in that aggro tempo deck maybe then you don't put it in the main deck but like any other deck i mean i feel like this card is so good i would almost splash for it because it's only a single designated white yeah so i feel like you can just sneak this into something else and it's it's good enough that i i I would throw this into a deck that isn't even white okay yeah actually I'm, i'm i'm coming around to the idea of just having a single copy of it. I sort of like it being a card in there that you're fighting over and wondering who took it away from you. Yeah, that's who's maybe dipping into white to play the ghostly prison that you wanted to get. Right. You shouldn't be able to wheel ghostly prison. Like if you want this card, you should spend a high pick on it because it is that good. This card is insane. Yeah. So singleton auto include. I like that. Yeah. Speaking of the fact that this was um uncommon in the draft set. <laughs> I don't know what that did to limited play, but can you imagine like if you did come up against the opponent who'd managed to grab two or three ghostly prisons and just, just stalls you forever and you just can't play magic. All right. Let's talk about a card that uh, has less of a storied history. Harsh deceiver three and a W for a one, four creature spirit. So four mana, one, four spirit one. Look at the top card of your library Two. This is a separate ability. Reveal the top card of your library. If it's a land, untap Harsh Deceiver, and it gets plus one, plus one until end of turn. Play this ability only once each turn. So it's a four mana, one four, that for one can look at your top card, and for two can uh, reveal your top card. And if it's a land, um, it, it gets marginally less horrifically bad. And untaps. And, and he untaps. All right, fine. Uh, I think this card is unbelievably bad. Um, like four mana for a one four is not getting there on rate. Even in this set, there's like a four mana one seven coming up. It's also not that good. Um, and this ability is just like, it's an insult. Like paying three mana to make this into a two five that kind of has vigilance, which is kind of what it should be off the, like without all the Sometimes. abilities. This Sometimes you get a 2-5 with kind of vigilance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Other times... Not every time. Uh, yeah, well, how many land do you have in your deck? 40% of the time, you get a 2-5 with vigilance. Uh, 60% of the time, you just wasted 3 mana and showed your opponent the top card of your library. So I gave this a med, but Ooh. I've definitely come around to Instacut. I, I, here's the reason I gave it a med. Not because of Harsh Deceiver, but because there are four other Deceivers in this set. One in each color. This is a whole cycle of deceivers all of them with similar abilities they all have the same ability of spending one mana to look at the top card of your library and then a two mana ability that gives him some kind of buff when you reveal that and it turns out to be a land Mm -hmm. so i i don't think that 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 is strong or very good in any way or or even particularly interesting (laughs) honestly or maybe even particularly interesting but i i do like the idea of these being bluffing cards so maybe not harsh deceiver harsh deceiver is not making it but i feel like 
one of the other deceivers should appear just a little bit, maybe just in a first iteration of the cube, just so we can see some of that bluffing in action, because it, it feels like it should be, it, it could be interesting, I guess. Talk, talk me through that. Why is there bluffing? Because don't you, so you pay two mana. Doesn't your opponent just go, okay, I'll see what happens? Like, where, where does the bluffing moment come in there? Because you can't, it's not like you're going to do this and then they're going to decide to block and then they'll find it. Oh, I guess you could pay to look and then... Exactly. So imagine, let's imagine a situation where... where okay. Let's go. Well, I'm getting, I'm grabbing my, my whiteboard. All right. I'm Let ready. me think about this. So your opponent, your opponent has a 2-2 that they're ready to block your harsh deceiver with. Mm, it's a big risk. Reminder, he's a 1-4. Yep. You have already paid one mana to look at the top card of your library. So you know, you know whether that's a <laughs> I land think at that point you're not already losing. You know. paid one mana to do <laughs> you nothing. Know. <laughs> you know if it's a land. Your opponent, I don't think I need to remind you, your opponent does not know no. whether that's a land. No. You swing with your 1-4 harsh deceiver. Now your opponent is thinking about that top card on your library. He's thinking... If that's a land, and if my opponent pays two more mana, then <laughs> my 2-2 two two is dust. It's going to be a blowout. This Harsh Deceiver is just going to stop him, and the Harsh Deceiver is going to untap. Oh, my God. And he can get another plus one, plus one next turn when he blocks my 3-3. Three, three. Yes. Wow. By the way, he can only do the plus one, plus one. <laughs> yeah. Once that's, that's the kind of final just kick in the knees, isn't it? Just like... Really? Like if I put three mana into this, you're not going to just let... So, I mean, let's compare it. So it's kind of like a shade, right? So like the shades goes all the way back to alpha, the site, you know, this long series of black cards that'll be like, pay a black mana to give something plus one, plus one. Um, and you can do that any number of times. And so this card costs two to three mana and you can only do it once. You're paying twice as much. And you, it's just, it's so, it's so viciously unfair. Yeah, I, I will admit Harsh Deceiver is just just bad it's pretty bad i i do want some deceiver to appear in here uh speaking of shades uh there's a famous thing with the very first shade frozen shade from alpha um if you're not looking at it go look up the art it's got awesome art um or if you're not familiar with the art but it's also infamous for a problem which is that you look at the art and it looks like the, that thing is flying because it's in a, in midair suspended there's nothing around it it's like clearly flying and i feel like harsh deceiver has that same problem of this guy's definitely flying. Like he should have flying, but he doesn't. And that that's that's a little additional niggling annoyance for me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, is this an insta-cut? <laughs> I'm willing to say goodbye to him. Uh, one other thing I'll say is like, why is he harsh? Like, what's harsh about this guy? Uh I'd I'd say plus one plus one and untapping's pretty harsh. Yeah, it's the harsh all my harshest teachers would untap themselves unexpectedly. The art actually looks you know, for for Akami, he looks relatively welcoming with these smiling, <laughs> like smiling mask faces. <laughs> I just kind of, I just noticed this sort of skeletal chicken claws at the bottom. So maybe, yeah. Hmm. Um, okay. Well, let's move on from him. Hikari Twilight Guardian, yeah. three WW for a four four legendary spirit with flying who says, whenever you play a spirit or arcane spell, you may remove Hikari Twilight Guardian from the game. If you do, return it to play under its owner's control at end of turn. Basically, we've got a 5-mana 4-4 flyer uh, who can flicker every time you play a spirit or arcane spell. You had me at 5-mana 4-4 flyer. I know, in this set, for sure, especially in white. 
Um, I really, really love this card. We're going to talk about like six mana, two, one flyer later. Yeah, we're, we're getting there. There's some good stuff coming up. <laughs> some quality cards <laughs> and content coming up. Bass in um, your seatbelts. This guy's amazing, I think. So like five mana, four, four flyer is fine. I think even today that's yeah. fine. And then he has this ability that's, you know, that's decent gravy, right? Your opponent targets it with the removal spell because it's literally the biggest creature on the board, barring the dragons. Um, and you go, ha ha, I kept a copy of Candle's Glow for just this moment. <laughs> Candle's Glow! Um, and then you really get him. I think this guy's great. That's a big turn. It's a big, big turn. I I really love this card. I really, really love the art. This is one spirit in this set that looks like particularly threatening and godlike. He's looming over what I think is maybe a battlefield mm-hmm. or something. You know, looks very, very powerful and just really awesome. I will say, though, there is not much in this set for this flicker effect to trigger. There's there's not very much synergy for Hikari to be kicking off when he comes back into the battlefield or when he leaves. I think the synergy here is just save him from a removal spell, and that's right. like enough. Because yeah, I don't I don't know if there's almost anything that's like whenever a spirit enters or something. Yeah, I'm, I was just kind of like looking through the cards, at least in Champions. There's really very very little enter the battlefield type effects yeah let me even see if there's anything there if i did my scryfall search right there are two cards that could interact with that there is ronin war club which is an equipment from betrayers that gives a creature plus two plus one and when a creature enters you can attach the war club to it which doesn't really do much here because you're removing him from combat by definition from flickering him Um, it'll be stronger next time and uh, in the Web of War, which uh, whenever a creature comes into play under your control, it gets plus two, plus zero, and gains haste until end of turn, which um, also I don't think could profitably interact with this. So yeah, no, uh, this is this is just save a card from a removal spell, basically. Yeah. Which I think is good enough. I think that's good enough with five mana, four, four. Is this guy an auto-include? I had him as a playable, but I think he's just like, I, I struggle to see cutting this guy from the cube. Yeah, he's, he's making it in. He's also going to end games, which I think is going to be a problem. So, like, he actually has enough power to, like, help close out a game. Yeah, I, I guess that's that's something to keep in mind. But, I mean, they, there has to be something in there that can end the game. Let's move on to Hold the Line. One WW for an instant. Blocking creatures get plus seven, plus seven until end of turn. So this is a callback to Righteousness from Alpha, which is uh, for single W blocking, a single blocking creature gets plus seven, plus seven. This gives all blockers plus seven, plus seven. I don't know. This one is tough to evaluate. I feel like it's one of those kind of trap cards that looks really cool. Like your mind immediately starts spinning up scenarios of like, oh, wow, imagine, you know, the blowouts I can have on my opponent. You know, I could just wipe their entire board. Um, But I I just don't know if in practice it's really going to work out that way very often. I I feel like this is going to get stuck in your hand or your opponent's never going to make that Alpha Strike, you hope, especially because it's pretty telegraphed, right? It's like three mana, two of which are designated. Like it's pretty... Well, if your opponent's ever seen this happen, I feel like they're going to know why you didn't attack with any creatures and why you're holding up three mana. Right, right. I mean, do we want... I I also rated this meh. I guess I don't, I don't really see the situation where you're all that happy having this. Like the, the blowout that you might set up just seems so unlikely to happen. Yeah, sure does. Um, I, I feel like I still want to throw in a single one just because it's a cool, flashy effect, although I, probably it ends up getting cut in the end. 
Um, this has a mysteriously high rating on Gatherer, which I can only assume is just because it's really cool. On Gatherer, this is one of the highest rated white cards in the whole set. Wow. Yeah, but I don't. That doesn't make it good. Nope. Yeah, I guess that's that seems fine to have one copy in there. Like this is rated one point higher than Hikari Twilight Guardian for as a random example. That that's hurtful. I guess it's a meh. I don't know. I feel like I'm just super meh on whether to even call this a meh. I th- I think that means we just put put them in there. Put one copy in there. Test it out. See what happens. All right. I feel like you're getting. I feel like we're alternating where I get the cards that are hateful and you get the cool ones. You want to take us on? I know. I set it up this way. Yeah. Well played. (laughs) Let's go to Honden of Cleansing Fire. Three W for a legendary enchantment shrine. It says at the beginning of your upkeep, you gain two life for each shrine you control. Uh, So there's a couple, you know, interesting different things happening with this card. First is that it's a legendary enchantment and. This card and the other four Honden in this set were, I believe, the very first legendary enchantments uh, in Magic. There were world enchantments that existed way back when, but these are the first legendary enchantments. Uh, And it also has a subtype of Shrine. Um, So the way that these Honden work is, uh, obviously, you can only have one copy of each Honden in play because they're legendary. But if you're able to get multiple Honden out there in multiple colors, they all build off of each other, and they all have an effect that gets stronger based on how many Honden you have in play. Um, so in this case, Honden of Cleansing Fire uh, gets you, you know, two life every turn for every shrine that you control. Yeah, and actually now I'm wondering, is this the first subtype uh, in sh- uh, for enchantments in the game? And I think it is, because of course and Aura's me. weren't a subtype until a set or two later. Yeah, I, I love the Hondans. They're just such a fun cycle. They like particularly as a newish player when the set came out, like they just call out to you like build a deck around me. Like you don't have to be told um exactly. why or what should go in it. You're just like, oh yeah, I put a bunch of Hondans in there. Um and some things that help me play Hondans faster. That's awesome. I also like uh how these here legendary is definitely used as a drawback, you know, like mm-hmm. having that legendary tag is nerfing this card by keeping you from having you know, more than one Honden of the same type out on the battlefield, which kind of forces you to, you know, consider how you're going to build this multicolored deck that gets as many shrines out there as you can, but doesn't just let you spam the same one and get this crazy effect. Yeah. Uh, and there's, you know, given that legendary was such a, a key mechanic, a key idea in Kamigawa, uh, it's interesting seeing how it's, it's used basically as a way of weakening a lot of cards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, yeah, I uh, I feel like I'm willing to warp the cube almost as much as it takes in order to include the Hondans, just because they are probably in my some of my favorite cards in the entire block. I just really, really love these cards and have a huge fondness for them. And I think they're cool. I think they create a kind of fun, unique uh, mini game during the draft. Uh, you know, and if this is the only Honden you get, it's not unbelievably bad. It's not great, but like gaining two life a turn is tolerable. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I was thinking, especially, you know, if we have that totally white deck, mm-hmm. you know, I think you're going to be pretty happy to be gaining two life every turn. And I think with how slow most Kamikawa decks are likely to be, um, you know, getting that for four mana doesn't seem terrible. No, it doesn't. It doesn't seem totally awful. 
Um, so obviously I think we rate this a build around and in some quantity, I feel like we're going to have to see where the cube size ends up to know how many, but I think it's probably around two to three X. Like, I don't think it should be super easy to pick up Hondans, but I think more than one of each is probably necessary. Yeah. How many do you think we should start with in testing? Um, let me look at some of the other quantities we've had so far. Uh, (laughs) I'm remembering that we gave candles glow a four X. Which seems increasingly unearned. Is that our only four X? That's so our far? only. It's our only four X so far as the iconic what candles glow. Yeah, that 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 I <laughs> I feel like I pulled a, the wool over your eyes for that one. Um, I feel like we should start with two, two of each, and like if it's not enough to make the Hanan deck work, we need to add. All right. Uh, let's go ahead and talk about Horizon Seed. Horizon Seed is four and a W for a two-one spirit. Yes, you heard that right. Five mana for a two-one. Whenever you play a spirit or arcane spell, regenerate target creature. Wow, this card is so bad. <laughs> I've somehow never seen this card uh, in like 20 years of uh, living with Kamigawa. Um, I kind of see why, because like this card has no reason to show up in a deck or an article or any content ever, because this card is, is just terrible. <laughs> like It's a pretty decent effect, regenerating a creature, but the fact that it triggers off spirits or arcane is like, well, it doesn't really trigger off spirits because... That's going to be sorcery speed, and you don't need to regenerate at sorcery speed almost ever. So, like, this, this card's just really bad. It is so terrible. And I, I love that it's an uncommon also. Yeah. <laughs> you get this 2-1 for 5, and that's uncommon. And and just, you know, as you're pointing out, such not only is it not a very exciting or good ability, but it's just it's so hard to imagine the situation where this pans out yeah two one is just such a like that that's the real kicker here because like you can imagine i don't know if this was like a a one five or something so you're just like this is a big defensive wall that makes everything else more defensive yeah then it's okay ish or like the flip side if this was maybe like a five one and you can like chip in and threaten huge damage with it like something to make it provide some additional value on its own but like two one is just that can't do anything like it's just it's not going to have any impact on the game Nope, not a bit. I did really love this art, like having seen it for the first time here. It's really kind of spooky and strange. Um, it's got this kind of like iridescent look to the creature in the foreground. And then a the background look almost looks like a, like a Japanese woodcut or something. Like there's a really kind of yeah. strange um, stylistic contrast between the, the character and the background that appeals to me. Like I, I really like this uh, this art. Yeah, it's a pity it's on this card. I know that's that's a common trend throughout the set, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this is the art here is by Mac Cavada, who's an artist who for a while became um, uh, Magic's, I think, art director uh, before leaving the company. And you could you could see why he uh, made that case for himself with pieces like this. this is a, a very strong, unique piece. Yeah, Instacut though. Up to cards and Instacut. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Another questionable spirit. We've got hundred Talon Kami. It's a four W spirit. Uh, two three with flying and soul shift four and this is our first soul shift card which is exciting so let's read out what that does when this is put into a graveyard from play you may return target spirit card with converted mana cost four or less from your graveyard to your hand basically what this mechanic does it only appears on spirits and it lets you get a spirit of um one less mana cost back from your graveyard when this spirit dies i don't i don't i really don't know how to feel about this card just 
just the fact that it's something with more than one power and it flies feels like <laughs> it's okay. You're already excited. In Kamigawa? Yeah. And that you can soul shift and get something back when you lose this guy? Maybe he's not that bad. I gave him a meh, but I don't know. I'm warming up to him. Yeah, I yeah. think he's somewhere between meh and playable. Um, like, I think a five mana, two, three flyer. I mean, it's not amazing, but like the until recently, um, you would always hear that like, uh, what is what is the card that was originally printed as this? Like a five mana three three flyer vanilla is kind of a base rate that's tolerable um, in a draft deck. Uh, you'd hear that a lot on limited resources or something. This guy's a little worse. He's two three, so that's you know that matters. Um, and it's not like five mana three three is amazing, but it's fine. But like soul shift four is is decent. That's some decent value um, to pull you in. And I think like Kamigawa limited games are about grinding out value, and so I, I think this guy's pretty decent. Yeah, should we put him in? Yeah, I think we put him in at like a two X. Like I think this is this is kind of a glue card that makes the soul shift deck work. Nobody's excited yeah. about it, but he's fine. I do think you're right that it's a meh though. I feel like giving this guy a playable is just it's just an insult it, to playables. It's a little too much. Like ghostly this guy can't rate we can't rate this guy playable and have ghostly prison as playable. No. No. <laughs> when you put it that way. <laughs> this is uh the art on this card is definitely um like peak Kamigawa. It's so hard to describe what this creature looks like. It's this purple, purple bag of flesh looking thing with a tiny little humanoid face on it. And then all of these talons and claws coming out of it uh, in a pretty like horrifying arrangement. I mean, it, it really looks like this would be like a, a black demon type creature in another set if you change the background a little bit. Oh, you know what I just realized? If you zoom way in on the art, um like on scryfall there's two faces that like kind of what that kind of like fabric thing has another face on top of it so he's got like a male face Whoa. that's old on the top and then a kind of younger female face on the bottom wow um it's it's freaky i just sent you a close-up of the art we're gonna need a live reaction here on on mike oh wow yeah i've been looking at this card for years and i never noticed that yeah i can see all the all the veins on the central pus bag too <laughs> oh god that's probably the only time i I'll hope we never need to podcast. say that phrase again during the podcast Oof. yeah i i like this i think this art is decent it's not one of my top kamigawa spirit art cards because while it is freaky um my i think the best of them to me are like so strange that they're kind of um they're like almost like conceptual art or something mm-hmm. and i don't think this one quite rises to that level for me like it's it's very solid but it's not like I don't know. Lantern Kami to me is the gold standard of like truly freaky Kamigawa art that just looks otherworldly and, and utterly alien. Yeah. Agreed. But still, I, I think this guy gets a solid meh. Congratulations. Yeah. hundred Hall- talent Kami. All right. Let's talk about Indomitable Will. Indomitable Will is one and a W for a uh, enchant creature or an aura. Uh, and you may play Indomitable Will anytime you can play an instant. So we now call that flash. So it's... <laughs> One and a W for a flash aura, and it says enchanted creature gets plus one, plus two. Uh, Pretty straightforward. It's basically holy strength uh, for one more mana with flash. Um, That's not getting like my pulse racing. I'm not like incredibly excited about this card, Um, but it's not totally embarrassing. It's like a really mediocre pump spell that can win a combat. I think this card's fine. Yeah, I think this is uh, in, in limited Kamigawa. I think this is actually pretty strong. Hmm. I think getting a permanent buff that's a little bit more than just plus one plus one uh, is 
actually pretty much unique in white champions cards. Hmm. I'm not seeing any other. I think you're pretty white much cards right. here yeah. that let me go look. You know, can just absolutely give you uh, this kind of buff. There's a couple cards that you know buff based on creature type and whatnot. I feel like this is about as as good as it gets as far as like making your creatures a little more tough and sturdy uh, in this limited setting where a lot of creatures are just really terrible. And frankly, I, I, I think where in a set like this, where there are so many low power, low toughness creatures, there are not that many like big bombs that are coming in with that much power and toughness. Uh, having a little bit of an edge, just plus one, plus two is enough to put you over the top against Hmm. Your opponent's also weak creature, if that makes sense. It does, because what it's making me think is like the the traditional trade off with an aura, right? Is that you're you're opening yourself up to a two for one. You've invested two right. cards, they get killed by one card. But I think what you're saying is like it's more like a one for one because you win a combat, kill their creature, and then this sticks around, and so you've actually gained a, a just a a hair's breadth of advantage there, um, and pulled ahead on cards. Right, and and you choose the terms of it. You know, you're not putting Indomitable Will out there and just kind of waiting for that creature to die to removal, mm-hmm. um, without you know having gotten any benefit out of this aura. You you set the terms and you say like, I know that I will be getting value out of this card by mm-hmm. you know putting it on a blocker or putting it on my attacker and tricking my opponent a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think I'd be persuaded by that. The other thing that I, I'm liking about this card is that it's it's kind of a unique effect. Like, as you were saying, there's not that many auras in the set. Um, many of them are terrible. This one is fine. Like, I, I think, you know, that in itself is has some value just as a unique effect that, that's nice nice to represent the block and to, to increase the variety of cards accessible in the cube. Yeah. I'm willing to go meh on this. I, don't, I still don't. I'm reluctant to go all the way to playable with you. Okay, I guess we can settle on meh. But I like your idea of having two of it. I think that's a decent place to start, although we might need to cut it in the end. All right. And I, I'm I'm fact-checking you as uh, I go through here. Yeah, I don't really see any other card in the set, except for a Serpent Skin, which is kind of like a green version of this that's slightly better, maybe. There's only two uh, Auras in the set, or in the entire block, that bo- boost power and toughness without a huge drawback. There you go. Okay, let's uh, go to Innocence Kami. Oh boy. 3WW for a 2-3 spirit uh, with this ability. Pay a white mana and tap Innocence Kami to tap target creature. And whenever you play a spirit or arcane spell, untap Innocence Kami. Um, So this is, I guess, a, a creature that lets you do some kind of soft control of your opponent by tapping down their creatures and then theoretically playing your spirit spirits and arcane spells to untap innocence Kami and then pay another white mana and tap another creature down uh, and just sort of keep your opponent locked down like that. Uh, but it's just so much mana for so little creature. Yeah, it really is. It, it's pretty brutal because this is, you know, this is one of the iconic white effects. Like I'm kind of doing a lazy scryfall search and there's like, eyeballing it 50 plus white cards that do some variant of this wow. um and some of them are really good like uh you know uh, amon Ket has fan bearer single w one two and you can pay two and tap to tap target creature or um more recently giant killer 
um, from Throne of Eldraine, you know, another one mana thing that can tap down a creature. There's a bunch of things that do this throughout Magic's history, um, but almost all of them uh, share one thing in common, which is that they're like one or two mana, maybe three. Like five mana is kind of late in the game to be doing something like this because the earliest you're going to be able to activate the ability is probably is turn six and more realistically like turn seven or eight as you wait to get up to five mana. Like this thing is not not happening anytime soon in the game. And I just think that's too late to have an impact most of the time. Yeah. The the second ability also, the when you play Spirit or Arcane Spell, untap it, just feels almost totally irrelevant because not only are you spending the one mana to tap a creature, you're also spending the cost of whatever Spirit or Arcane Spell you're playing um, to get that tap value. Obviously, you're not probably not playing the Spirit or Arcane Spell just to use Innocence Kami again. Um, but that ability feels almost irrelevant. Yeah, I think the challenge there is you're just not accruing, you're not tacking on that much extra value onto it, right? Like right. you're tapping two things, and that's that's pretty nice, I guess, but it's not it's not amazing. Although, I don't know, maybe if you're doing it in, you know, we, we did commit ourselves to having four candles glows in the cube. Like maybe, <laughs> maybe this does something with that. Like you're just kind of really just hard locking your opponent out of the game. With that, eh, no, I don't think so. But even there, you know, think about Innocence Kami with Candle's Glow. What Candle's Glow is doing is preventing combat damage. Yeah, right, it's too late. Healing you instead. So Innocence Kami is <laughs> stopping the combat damage before it starts. Yeah. yeah so the timing right. there is not ideal. Yeah, and we're going to compare this in a little bit against Kabuto Moth. Um, and just, yeah, anyway, uh, all that to say, I think this might actually just be an Instacut. I think this card yeah. is just really bad. Yeah, cut it. All right, goodbye. All right, finally, my streak of talking about the, the less exciting cards is coming to an end because we have Isamaru, Hound of Konda. Uh, one white mana for a legendary creature Hound. 2-2. Two, two. That's it. There's no rule stacks. So it's a single mana for a 2-2 two, two Hound that's legendary. That might not sound like much but by today's standards, but when this came out, this made a huge splash. Uh, this card was iconic. This card was written about everywhere. This card had like a spoiler article that you know, treated this as a, as a giant reveal. Um, there had never, ever been a card like this in the history of Magic. Just a straight one mana, two, two, no downside. Just get in there and beat them um, up. Uh, this card was a game changer um, that really presaged a, a shift in the power of one drops over the next decade or two. Mm-hmm. Also a surprisingly popular commander. Yeah, yeah, there's a, not a huge number of decks, but there's enough. And I just love the people are like motivated to try to make this guy work in commander. That's great. Yeah, definite auto-include in our cube. Yeah, just to reiterate why, it's like he's strong, uh, strong power. It's an iconic card from the set. It's influenced magic design uh, ever since. It's got awesome art. Like the the fearsomeness on this hound um, is really uh, fun to look at. Um, Really nice line work, really bright popping colors. Like there's just everything about this card is great. Mm -hmm. Well, why do you, why do you say it influenced the design of magic? Well, so before this, there was like, so in Alpha, there is um, Savannah Lion. So one white mana for 2-1 with no downside. Then uh, Red gets a series of like, uh, not a lot, but a handful of single red, two power creatures that are either conditional, like Curd Ape, or are um, come with drawbacks, like Jackal Pups. But white kind of gets left out of the party all the way until Isamaru. And there was no card in Magic with this stat line, like the 2-2 bear stat line for one mana, 
with no downside until Isamaru. That just literally didn't exist um, for the first, whatever, 15 years of Magic's life or 11 years of Magic's life, I guess it was. Um, and then since then, I think R&D has kind of slowly and then recently pretty dramatically opened the taps in terms of what one-drop creatures can do. Like you can see that elsewhere in the set, right? Like the other one-drops in the set are like a 1-1 one, one flyer, a 1-1 one, one with Bushido 1, a 0-1 with a marginal ability. Like they're they're not good cards, but this guy is. This guy is a beating. Like a 2-2 two, two is is a serious body that can like threaten to trade up with a bigger creature, get in for damage. Um, and I think this showed that like that wasn't too dangerous. Like R&D could actually do that and not break the game. Yeah. He could lose to a harsh deceiver though. That's right. Yeah. That's, um, but not necessarily. <laughs> I think that shows how good this is, right? <laughs> like there's no guarantee that a four or five mana creature uh, could take this down. It trades with horizon seed. Oh man. Actually, you know what? A 1-1 one, one trades with Horizon Seed. That's a bad example. <laughs> Almost every card in this, every creature in the history of Magic trades with Horizon Seed. One interesting question with Isamaru, I think, is how many to include. So I, I went nuts here and said 4x. I think that's wrong just because the power's uh, too high, maybe, and it just feels weird. But like from a deck construction perspective, I don't think that's crazy. Like You look right now, mm. you know, we're in the age of Raghavan um, right now in Modern, which is a, you know, a red two drop or red one drop that's probably the most powerful one drop printed in the history of magic by a significant stretch uh and even though he's legendary he's played it in four copies because he's just that good and i think isamaru like if you could get four of these in your draft deck i'd put them all in like that wouldn't be a problem Mm -hmm. but do we want that situation where you could have four i don't think so but i don't think we just want one either right like if we want Uh that white weenie deck to exist like this is the this is the gold standard, right? This is like what makes that deck tick is Isamaru, I suspect. Right. I feel like maybe we maybe we start with three of them, not quite four, but three of them and see if that gets too wild. Three, yeah, I'm fine with three or even two. Like we could tune it up if needed, like make people work for it. Yeah, I, I definitely think four is wrong, but I also think more than one. Um, yeah. It's also kind of an interesting little like skill testing decision point for a drafter, like, Thinking about, can I include multiples of these? Yeah, I don't know, two or two or three. I'll, I'll let I'll make put this one on you. Let's start with three. All right. Yeah, that just I mean that gives me more chances to look at Isamaru, which I'm totally happy with. Uh, next one's not quite as exciting, but still a bit of a house in his own way. This is Kabuto Moth, two W for a one two spirit with flying, and the ability tap target creature gets plus one plus two until end of turn. I'm actually going to pass the torch over to back to you on this one, because I think you have a lot more to say about Caputo Moth than I do. Yeah, and I have to confess it's secondhand. So I haven't really played with this card um, much, except in casual play a long time ago. But when I watch Chaos Draft streams, people speak of Caputo Moth with a certain degree of reverence. Um, and similarly, when people talk about Kamigawa Block Limited, they also talk about Caputo Moth with um, some reverence. And I think the reason is this guy just messes up combat badly um you know we talked about being somewhat excited about indomitable will well indomitable will goes on one creature it's stuck to that creature forever and it comes with the risk of a two for one kabuto moth sits on the battlefield threatening an indomitable will at any time for zero mana um, which means that your opponent's um blocking decisions and attacking decisions just become a nightmare because they have to make their decisions and then you get to tilt the board in whatever way is most advantageous for you and so like every one of your creatures is now a better rate than their creatures. So if you just take, you know, Mm. to take a simple example, you have three bears, they have three bears. Um, They can't swing in because you're just going to be able to set up your blocks 
um, such that you're going to win and, and indeed blow your opponent out. And similarly, um, the other way around. This this is just a really solid card. And when it's just on its own, it blocks as a 2-4 flyer, which for three mana in Kamigawa is like already fine. Like th- this card is really strong, yeah. I think. Is it too strong Oof. for a cube? Uh, I don't think so. I haven't played with it, as I said, directly um, outside of really casual play. And so I'm not sure, but I, so we need to try. My instincts tell me it's good and it's not GTA, right? Like this isn't like game-breakingly powerful, but I do think it's good. I think it's a reason to be in white for drafters. Yeah. Why don't we, uh, why don't we go with two copies of that then? Two copies? All right, I, I can live with two copies. Um, I also want to just say this card has like, I guess what I'll call stress equity for your opponent. Like it just, it just puts your opponent in such an uncomfortable position where like all their, none of their decisions look good. Like they just have to sweat every combat and you just get to sit back there stroking your moth and just knowing that you're going to, you're going to clean up. Also, it's got great art. I love Kabuto Moth. Thank you, Kabuto Moth. (laughs) Okay, great. Let's talk about Kami of Ancient Law. Kami of Ancient Law is one and a W for a 2-2 spirit. And you can sack it to destroy an enchantment. So 2-2 spirit that can kill itself to kill an enchantment. Um, This guy's fine, right? It's a bear. Bears are fine. The weenie deck wants some bears. It's got an ability that might be somewhat relevant against Hondans. Um, It's part of the spirit tribe. So you can spirit craft it back. This card's fine. Let's let's include it. I think it's like a playable, and we should have two-ish. Yeah, I I agree. I I've always liked this card mostly for the art. It's just a super bizarre kami. It's kind of horrifying. It it kind of is, and it I feel like it captures the weirdness of this whole block really perfectly. Where you've you've got these bizarre creatures that barely even look like a creature that you would you know recognize from magic the gathering it doesn't look like what you would imagine as a spirit before kamigawa uh it doesn't look like a beast it doesn't look like a human it's just this weird like half fleshy let's let's try to describe it yeah so like okay so it's like a kind of serpenty thing so Mm -hmm. its tail starts with like a claw like hand the and then ground. we transition into kind of like a gray snake-like body with tassels with tass with with like a tasseled robe and then we go to like kind of a pink sort of body horror <laughs> skeletal Side figure hand. that is wearing from what I, what I think is a judge's wig because it's a kami of law and then it's like either spitting out or ingesting like stone tablets of law from out of its body. I mean, this is really strange. Yeah. Oh, and it's standing next to a, a scales. Wow, they really hit the yeah. law thing pretty hard here. Didn't they? <laughs> they wanted you to know what this what this guy's deal was. And it's destroying enchantments. Yeah, I don't feel like any of that connects to enchantments. Like it's the ancient law that well, I guess we are finding out the spirits of Kamigawa hate enchantments because they do hate enchantments. Kami of ancient law and the the one thing with the purple worms. Cleanfall, yeah. Cleanfall. They're they're they want to get rid of the enchantments. Hmm. The ancient laws say that they must. Okay, but wait, will you pause on that? Because the the iconic enchantments from the set are the Hondans, which are shrines to the Kami some of which actually make spirits. Hold on a second. Something doesn't add up. This is getting very complicated. Hmm. But I do like this guy. And yeah, this guy's fine. I feel like, you know, we we should have something in the cube that can deal with enchantments. And I feel like this is the right 
kind of something. You know, he's still a bear, uh, with or without an enchantment being on the battlefield, and it gives you the option of dealing with one. Yeah, I actually feel like he's basically, you know, like nowadays we talk about hate bears, you know, like these low mana value, disruptive white creatures. And he's kind of like a mediocre early hate bear. Okay. Yeah. I think he's playable. And I think we should have two of them to start. Let's do it. He's kind of a glue card. Like, I feel like we dial up the amount of cami, dial up or down the amount of cami of ancient law, depending on, you know, what what the, how many two drops we need. Yeah. And I, I think at this point, the only... No, I guess we have uh, we have multiple enchantments at this point, so could be relevant. Yeah. Uh, all right, our next card is Kami of Old Stone. 3W for a 1-7 spirit, and that's it. I have almost nothing to say about this guy. <laughs> He's just uh, a big butt Kami with uh, one power who's going to do a whole lot of blocking, maybe. Yeah, he's just going to stand there and block. But he doesn't have Defender. He can go attack, you know. He could. If needed, to, with one power, admittedly. He's just going to get blocked, probably by, like, a Kami of Ancient Law. But, you know, it's an option. Yeah, I just, uh, there's nothing here to really get excited. Even the art, he just kind of looks like a stone golem. Yeah, kind of thing. it's true. Uh, like, the art, you know, I feel like they could have done more to make him wacky. It's fine. It's not a bad piece of art. There's some pretty nice, like, work with the um the setting sun in the background or the rising sun in the background some some good good uh um light work here but yeah i just yeah i was i tried to write a comment about this guy for like three minutes and i was just like i really don't have anything to say he just he's just exists he's just there i had him as a mad just because my feelings were so like medium that i couldn't yeah. bring myself to like hate him or love him but i feel like he's just an instacut because like I don't know, who's going to be excited about this in a draft opening a pack? Yeah. Like nobody. See, I, I sort of feel like if, if my feelings for a card basically don't exist, then I, I feel like it's an instacut for me. Yeah. Just cause part of the goal is to evoke emotions and remind you of the, the block and so on. And this just doesn't evoke right. anything. Right. He's just there. All right. Goodbye. Kami of old stone back to the memory hole. Let's talk about Kami of the Painted Road, which if uh, nothing else, the art here is going to um, create some reactions. Uh, so Kami of the Painted Road is four and a W for a 3-3 three, three spirit. Whenever you play a spirit or arcane spell, Kami of the Painted Road gains protection from the color of your choice until end of turn. Uh, this I actually felt kind of like Kami of Old Stone about this. The art is really freaky, so we can talk about that. But the actual effect here is like, I don't know, just kind of meh. Like, uh... The, th- the thing I was noticing going through this set is like that White's toolbox feels very limited at this stage mm-hmm. in Magic's history. Um, like we're after the era when White gets to do really naughty things like balance and Armageddon, right? We're well past that. Um, we're past the early era of good removal in Swords to Plowshares. And we're before they invented like Oblivion Ring style removal and the idea that White can remove anything temporarily. Um, and so like, White basically has like life gain and damage prevention and yeah. protection. Like it doesn't have that much to do. And I feel like this card kind of shows that like, it's just not protection is a decently powerful ability, but just this card is like, Bleh. yeah. And, and so few of these abilities, you know, give white any meaningful way to just get rid of a threat or to get something out of the way so that 
you can actually get in and finish the game. Yeah, it's really hard to advance the board state. Like they, you can stall, but it's hard to like break, really meaningfully break parity. And this this actually reminds me of Horizon Seed that we were talking about a few minutes ago, uh, which had this similar when you play a spirit or arcane spell, do this effect. And in Horizon Seed's case, that was regenerate target creature. In this case, it's this gains protection from the color of your choice until end of turn. Um, you know, these are both creating a situation where you only get that benefit in a reactive stance. Well, I, I think it's a protection's a little bit better, right? Because it also gets bit. you unblockable from that color. But the problem is yeah. your opponent's likely in two colors and only it can only benefit itself too. If this was like target yeah. spirit, it would be a little better, but it's just him. And he's like, he's a turd. So who cares? Like, who cares? I don't care about protecting you. Call me with the painted road. Right. This three, three. Yeah, just this 3-3. Three, no three. other ability. Yeah, I just really feel like it's an awkward moment for White. You know, like we hadn't thought of, they had, R&D hadn't developed like token making and a hate bears and R and equipment synergies and like all these other, um, like White still gets hate for being boring, but it has a lot more tools in its toolbox. But at this point, there's just not much for it to do. Right. Just got to wait and count on Candle's Glow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh this has got to meet the same Instacut bar as Kami Voltstone, right? It just doesn't do I anything. Think so. Yeah. Gone. Gone. Okay. Uh, another Kami as we keep going through the Ks. Uh, Kami of the Palace Fields. 5W for a 3-2 spirit with flying and first strike and soul shift 5. I really struggled with writing this one. Like 6 mana for 3 power is pretty rough. Yeah. Even when it has flying and it, this has first strike also, but that's not, you know, changing the amount of damage that you're dealing to your opponent, which is probably what you're hoping to do with having a flyer. Um, you compare this to Hikari Twilight Guardian from earlier, where you've got a five mana four, four flyer and here a six mana three, two flyer. Uh, this feels pretty bad. It does have soul shift and with soul shift five could actually get back quite a few different things for you i suppose but this is just you know so much mana for what feels like a card that's not going to have that much impact you know it sets up a clock on your opponent i suppose but (laughs) a clock that starts on turn six yeah i think one problem we're going to run into with spirits now i think about it particularly um in white maybe is uh, we have these soul shift cards, but the spirits are worse than the humans. I think because they have soul shift, right? The yeah. like grinded out ability of them means R and D's maybe a little bit scared of them. Um, but what that means is like they're all kind of collectively bad. And I do wonder when we get to the end of this, are we going to find like we almost have to go back and include some of these mediocre spirits in order to make a soul shift deck work, or is, do we commit that deck to only certain colors rather than all five? Like just looking back, we've gone through about half the spirits in white already and mm-hmm. you know uh we've we've cut a lot of them because they're just not they're not that good yeah it uh at least so far i really feel like soul shift is not uh working <laughs> in white like i was trying to think of spirits that i would want to get back with kami of the palace fields and hikari is the only one that i can think of yeah i th- i think the thing with soul shift though is like that ability to recur and recur and recur and grind down that mana curve is pretty powerful right like that is going to make it like once you start um eking out that degree of value i think it does become pretty hard for your opponent to to outvalue you in the long run Mm -hmm. um 
but the cost is that the cards themselves are not very good. But right. maybe it means, for example, Kami the Painted Road is like a little better than it looks. I still don't want that guy in the cube though. But I feel like Kami the Palace, Palace Fields might do enough. Like it's a it's a flyer. It's really overcosted, but like maybe it, that's okay. Yeah, I think I think maybe it it has a place and it the the art is pretty enough and cool enough that I wouldn't mind you know seeing this card a little bit even if it ends up being pretty bad. Yeah, the the art here I think is is awesome. It's another Mac Cavada piece. You know, he did the uh um unfortunately not very iconic. Uh, I've already blanked on its name. What was it? It was Horizon Seed, right? Horizon Seed, thank you. Uh he did Horizon Seed, which also has stellar art. Um but this one is is much more kind of like storybook to me. Um you know, it's this woman again, it's like impossible to describe Kamigawa, Kamigawa spirit art. Um but it's this kind of like feminine figure wearing a traditional, like, kind of, you know, one of those uh, rice farmer hats. Um, and she's got this super long black hair that eventually kind of transitions into being her feet in this very in this way that's very whimsical and kind of playful and silly. And um, yeah, I just, I adore this art. I think it's super, super fun. Yeah, it's also uh, kind of a lot more recognizable as, you know, something Japanese-inspired than I think mm-hmm. most of the kami art is. You know, there's some images and motifs here that I think would be recognizable as Japanese to uh, most Magic players, whereas something like Kami of the Painted Road, which I don't, I don't think we actually ever described the art of that card. How could one? Go, you can try. I mean, it's it's hard. Let's rewind a little bit and talk about what <laughs> Kami of the Painted Road looks like. So what we have here is a human hand, a left hand to be specific, um, that's a disembodied hand scuttling its way down a path and out of the back of that hand. So opposite the palm are two, um, stony protrusions, pillars, uh, and between them at the top is an eyeball, just an eyeball hanging out between these two pillars. Um, and then, there's also some magical stuff and some floating things happening in front of it. A lot of floaty stuff behind it, just completely bizarre and yeah. just a super, super weird looking card. And this is by, this is a piece by Ron Spencer. So, you know, like very well-known magic artist, uh, tons of iconic pieces. So, you know, this isn't like they just brought in some random artist and said, make something super weird. Like this is Ron Spencer creating this super weird Kind of cool looking, but very, very bizarre spirit. Um, Kami of the Palace Fields, by contrast, is, you know, one of the few cards that I think would be like instantly recognizable as something Japanese inspired. Yeah, it's a good point. Because like one of the points uh, Mark Rosewater often makes about Kamigawa is that it, it disappointed a lot of players and sold poorly because they didn't recognize it as being Japanese enough. And, you know, according to Magic's designers, I don't know enough about Magic's folklore to verify this. I've sometimes wondered if this is a bit exaggerated by um, Magic Magic designers. Um, but according to them, it's a, it's a very faithful kind of interpretation of like Japanese folklore um, mm-hmm. and that they went really deep into the culture and really tried to draw out like interesting kind of obscure things that would feel very evocative. Um, but that it wasn't what players were expecting, which is like ninja, samurai, yeah. pop culture characters. Um and like, I think you're right that this card, like it's still whimsical. It's still very fairy. It's still weird, but it's also recognizably Japanese enough that you look and go, oh yeah, that's like a, 
that's a kind of Japanese spirit creature versus Kami the Painted Road is just like, what am I Ugh. looking at here? This is bizarre. Or even, and I don't think that is a very strong piece, to be honest, but even like Kami of Ancient Law, Kabuto Moth, um, like these pieces are great. And like, you'd really struggle, I think, to like connect them to what most people think of as like Japanese, right. uh, like pop culture, for sure. Right. Uh, where where do you come down on Kami of the Pal- Palace Fields? I feel like this is... It, I feel like this is a meh for me almost entirely because it has flying. Yeah, I mean, definitely. If it didn't have flying, I don't think we'd be talking about yeah. this. Just, just any like anything in white that gives you the ability to sort of punch through and close out a game. I think I, I feel like we can't just immediately cut. Um, but I suspect that this won't make it through every round of revisions in the future. Yeah, I feel like this is a one of meh to start. Yeah. Let's talk about Kitsune Blade Master. Uh, so Kitsune Blade Master is two and a W for a 2-2 Fox Samurai, which is an extremely cool type line. Uh, and he has First Strike and Bushido 1. So three mana 2-2 two, two with First Strike and Bushido 1. Uh, I think this card will do just fine. It's not mind-blowing, but it's a Grey Ogre with you know two very relevant abilities. Um, it's going to win a lot of combats. It's going to support the samurai theme. I have it as a like a playable two of. Yeah, totally agree. I thought it was playable, maybe even three of. Uh, hmm. I think this may be one of the better samurai in the set, actually, because it has first strike. Um, hmm. I don't know if I'm willing to go that far, because like, hmm, at the end of the day, it's it's only punching through for two damage if your opponent decides to ignore it, but... I don't know about one of the best samurai in the set. I mean, what are we, what are we really comparing him with, though? We've got uh, the retainer from earlier. Kanda's Hatamoto, I think, is pretty decent. Okay. Um, um, actually, let's uh, even see how many other three-drop samurais there are in the set. I suspect yeah, it's that's not many. That's a good question. Um, there are eight in total. Uh, no others in white except Opali Kondo's Yojimbo from Betrayers, which has Defender. So yeah, he's not facing a lot of competition um, in the yeah. three-drop Samurai slot. So he's definitely one of the better three-drop. <laughs> he's definitely he's definitely one of the better white three-drop Samurai. He's the best aggressive white three-drop Samurai in the set. I think we can agree on that. Red has some decent ones, but yeah, white. Okay, yeah, I think he might be a three of. You've convinced me. Yeah. You know, we may, may end up having too many of them, seeing him too often. But, you know, it, it, it's a card where I wouldn't be, you know, I wouldn't be sad in Kamigawa to pl- be playing this on turn three. Playable three of. All right. Playable three of. Okay, let's take a, talk about uh, another Kitsune. Kitsune Diviner. One white mana for a zero one Fox Cleric. And you can tap to tap target spirit. Only a spirit. This card was also... A struggle for me. I really like the idea of having this in like a white, um, you know, human anti-spirit type deck where you're just, you know, you're using this to lock down your spirit opponent. But it's just it's a zero one. It's so weak. It, it has no real impact on the board unless and until your opponent has a spirit out. So it's just it's hard for me to see this really having any kind of impact. Yeah, it's uh, it has literally the lowest impact on the board as a body that a magic card can have. Yeah. 
Yeah, the actual effect, I I don't know. You know, if we compare it to our earlier five mana tap a thing down, like this is the price you want to pay for one of these, right? You want to get it right. down early so you can mess up your opponent and kind of grind, like keep their best threats tapped down, make it hard for them to attack in, make it a little hard for them to block. And I also like, I think like the weenie deck that we're talking about, I think it's nearest, it's competition is largely coming from spirit decks, right? Like the, the human, the mortals tend to go lower to the ground. The spirits tend to go higher up. And so like in mana value. And so I think the fact that she targets only spirits may not be that big of a downside because it's really like all the expensive cards are largely spirits. So if this is yeah, tapping down true. your opponent's like four mana, two, four, that's going to supposed to hold the fort. Like maybe that's all you need her to do. I, I think that we should try, try her out. But I I do kind of suspect that most of the time, you know, she's going to be sitting there just kind of irrelevant and end up being just a chump block later on in the game. Yeah, I, don't, I could see it going either way. I could see her being yeah. irrelevant or I could see her actually presenting a little too much of a... Because, like, I feel like the expensive... We talked about this a little earlier. The expensive decks may already struggle to stabilize. And this might actually mean, like, maybe it even makes it a little... Like doesn't do anything in a lot of matchups, but against the spirit deck, actually makes it a little too hard for them to stabilize. Hmm. Yeah, hmm. I feel like we start with two of these in the cube. That makes sense. I had it as a playable. I, I do. Th- I'm more attracted to your meh. I don't think this is anything exceptional for sure. Yeah, two times meh. Let's talk about Kitsune Healer. Three and a W for a two-two. Um, Fox cleric. Um, tap, prevent the next one damage that would be dealt to target creature or player this turn. Tap, prevent all damage that would be dealt to target legendary creature this turn. Um, I have this is, I guess, a build around. I found this guy kind of hard to evaluate. It's a cool effect. Um, the first effect is annoying, and it can like kind of like Kabuto Moth make combat really annoying for your opponent, although this does suffer pretty badly in comparison with Kabuto Moth. The second ability is fun, though, and it does make me want to, like, build around it. Although I just feel like four mana for utility creature is awkward. Like, you don't really want your kind of tap down every turn utility creatures to cost four mana. I don't know. I found this one really right. hard to evaluate. Yeah, same here. I mean, I I said playable maybe as my rating. Like, preventing all damage to one of your legendary creatures sounds uh, really great. But like you're saying, it four mana to have this guy just kind of stick around and be tapping every turn to protect your legendary. It seems like a big investment uh, and, you know, kind of a a really awkward way to be spending your turn four. That's the comparison with Kabuto Moth is, is interesting because here, you know, the Kitsune healer does allow you to kind of mess around with combat and uh, make your opponent's life a little bit harder in terms of, uh, figuring out trades and getting combat to go their way. But unlike Kabuto Moth, Kitsune Healer is not allowing you to change the board state all that much. Like Kabuto Moth gives you the plus one power that right. you know could let you get rid of a threat that you otherwise wouldn't be able to, that lets you... Um, and it gives you plus two toughness, which is which yeah, does more yeah. to protect your creature than this does. Right. So it, you know, Kabuto Moth is letting you absorb absorb an attack and maybe also trade with a creature that you wouldn't otherwise be able to, or to get rid of a creature you wouldn't otherwise be able to. Kitsune healer is just kind of like, and kill your opponent faster. Potentially. Right. Uh, this guy's just kind of like 
maybe hopefully saving one of your creatures. Yeah, I feel like the more I we talk about and the more I feel like this is kind of an insta. So like this yeah, gets the closer into, he gets to insta cut. Yeah, because I feel like we're not building a set cube, right? Like a set cube where you're trying to simulate a dra- retail draft environment, you know, and every card makes the cut um, in a set ratio would would include this card. But I think we're not doing that, right? We're like crafting a more curated cube experience. And like if you want this effect. Kabuto Moth is right there, or there's like right. these various spirits that do weird, funky things with spirit and arcane triggers. That also, like, I just don't think this has a place in the cube against other cards that do somewhat similar things in ways that are either better or more interesting. Right. Yeah, I feel like we should just cut him. All right, let's just cut him. Yeah. Gone. Okay, our next Kitsune is Kitsune Mystic, and this is another flip card, so exciting times. Uh, the top half of Kitsune Mystic says uh, it's a 3W for a Fox Wizard, 2-3. At end of turn, if Kitsune Mystic is enchanted by two or more enchantments, flip it. <laughs> the other side is Autumn Tail Kitsune Sage, who is a 4-5 Fox Wizard, a legendary Fox Wizard, I should say. Uh, and he has this ability, pay one mana, move target enchantment, enchanting a creature to another creature. So nowadays that would, you know, say move target aura from one creature to another creature. <laughs> Reading this card, I was just thinking, like, what is the goal here? Like, eventually you get a 4-mana four 4-5 four that has this ability that is almost totally irrelevant and that you would really need to work hard to get any kind of value out of? Like, how well, often, yeah, how often do you need to control. move an enchantment? Well, it's not in your control either because the best use is stealing your opponent's auras. Right. And if your opponent knows how to like play magic well, they may not even be playing. Like it's just I, I just don't see how to make this card work. But the best case scenario is moving stealing your opponent's auras, putting them on your own creature. But you have to have enough auras of your own to flip Kitsune Mystic. So it's yes. like the the top half of this is setting you up. It's it's sort of it's making you think of a situation where you've got a whole bunch of auras on your creatures. And you get two of them on Kitsune Mystic, and then you're flipping them over, and then you're shuffling all your R's around however you want. And like, what what does that do for you? <laughs> Presumably, you're going to play the aura on the creature that you want it on to begin with. Yeah, and I think the other thing that's kind of remarkable about this is like, in modern magic, you could just give someone the, the back half of this creature for the front half mana cost, and it would still be like unplayable because it would be a four mana four five with an ability that will almost never trigger like this this card just doesn't i I don't know like even in that era it's really hard to see how this card makes sense like that i I think this is one area where the um the really small text box got to him because the the flip effect you know moving enchantments is kind of cool but it's not cool enough like if you had that and another ability that was like I don't know. Uh, Autumn Tail gets plus one, plus one for each enchantment you control, and you can pay one to yoink enchant auras. That would be kind of cool, right? You'd be moving and grooving, and it'd be a pretty right. cool effect. Right. But like, just this is not. It's it's just not. It's not even cool, let alone playable. Yeah, and I. That's that's an interesting point. I don't know that any of the flip cards have, you know, sort of more than one ability, per side. They're just sort of. You know, they the, the top there's half. There's no room. There's not. Yeah, enough the room. top half just has something that says flip it over, and then the bottom half has one usually pretty unremarkable ability because you only have three lines there. Like there's no, there's no space to put more on there that could make it more punchy or more 
impactful. I, I feel like these flip cards should, they, they seem like they should have more impact on the game because they are a flip card, but they really don't. Right, because they're asking you to put some work into them to usually because right. you start with a below rate creature, right? Like this is four mana for a two three. Even in a two three with no no ability. Even in Champions of Kamigawa, that's a terrible that's not a good card. You know, Bushi Tenderfoot is one white mana for a one one. Like these are below rate, but at least Bushi Tenderfoot flips into a card that's like it's not OP, but it's really cool, right? It's a three four double striking Bushido two samurai. That's cool. Like this thing flips into just an effect that it's hard to know if you 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 could you could play like ten pickup games of Magic with people at your local game store and never want and flip this in every game and never need to use the ability. Yeah, I think I think that this kind of highlights another problem with implementing flip cards in this way, where you know as opposed to having a double sided card where you've got a full text box and full art, all of that. Um, with the way that these flip cards are implemented, I I feel like there's a bit of a conceptual issue also where you look at this card and it feels like you're getting two cards for one right it looks like there are two cards Mm. here and you're getting the value of both of those on a single card kind of like uh, a split card where you've got you know two spells printed on the same card and it feels like there's sort of double value oh like you could make a choice or something right right Mm. like you have a choice or there's you know there's some extra utility being added on here because there are sort of two cards printed on the single piece of paper but that's really not the case with these flip cards at all. You've got what it really is, is a very weak creature that needs to have a very specific condition met to become usually uh, another not very good creature. Yeah, no, it's and it's a pity because there is a, you know, there's obviously a great idea in the kernel of this, right? Like this becomes transform cards. And I'm actually not personally a huge fan of transform cards, but clearly I'm in the minority. Like those are some of the most popular things magics come up with you know they're they show up in like every second set it seems like nowadays they're like a really popular idea that's really you know works for a lot of people um and i like the way that these are telling stories like they're you know all of these kind of start as non-legendaries early in their careers essentially mortals Mm -hmm. who grow into legendaries who presumably have a big role in the war or something like that's that's cool um it's just a pity that the actual mechanics just can't quite um, meet it. I hope we have at least one or two of these that are playable because it is Kamigawa, um, whether it's good or not. Um, but I don't think this one is making the grade. Nope. All right. Insta cut. This is a rare, by the way. This is a rare. And uh, my condolences to those of you who opened this card. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about Kitsune Riftwalker. One WW for a 2 1 Fox Wizard. Cool type line. Protection from spirits and from arcane. So it's a 2 1 Fox Wizard that gets has pro spirit, pro arcane. This thing's like fine-ish. I think the fact that it's double designated is pretty brutal. Like double designated for a two-one, even if it has some pretty relevant protection abilities, is not great. It's hard to get excited about, but it it might be fine. Yeah, maybe. I mean, the the three mana, two of them designated for something with one toughness, is just really hard for me to get behind as anything more than a mat. You know, like. Uh, well, you you noted in one of your comments that it's a a three mana two power unblockable creature, which seems fine, but I think realistically he's not even going to be that. Like I I I don't think we're going to have that many decks coming out of this cube that are you know purely spirit yeah. or yeah. purely human world. It's going to be a mix, right? You're going to have spirits probably filling out the top end of the deck mana cost wise, 
uh, your mortals at the lower end. Um, so, and given that it's probably more mortals at the lower end, Kitsune Riftwalker is not going to be unblockable early on in the game. And by the time your opponent has, you know, a five, six, seven mana spirit out there, admittedly, it's probably a seven mana three, three, but by the time they have that out there, you know, Kitsune Riftwalker is going to be irrelevant. Yeah, he'll be outclassed by, and the fact that he's just got a single point of toughness is just rough. Yeah, that's like, that's pretty tough. Bushi, Bushi Tenderfoot gets to tangle with this guy. <laughs> Alas, doesn't get to win, but does get well unless he has an indomitable will on him. Anyway, yeah, I think we both had this in Neb, but I kind of feel like, you know, to the to the same point, I feel like we're being tough on these poor Kitsune. But to the same point as Kitsune Healer, like, you know, just kind of why include this? Like, it's not yeah. it's not an iconic card. It's not a super interesting effect. We're talking ourselves into having this in when it's not a very good card. Neither of us really likes it that much, and yeah. it's not iconic. So. Yeah, and, and I don't think it's needed to fill a spot on a. Yeah, okay, all right, right. Goodbye. All right, <laughs> goodbye to Katsune Riftwalker. All right, let's just scrolling back. So the Katsune really have to um, build their hopes around uh, Katsune Diviner here because it's the only one that got more than an Instacut out of us. That's painful. Um, I mean, there's there are some other great foxes we're going to be talking about. Eight and a half tails is Kitsune also. He doesn't okay. have it in his name, but he is a fox. Okay, all right, that's that's cool. So we yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll we'll get we'll make sure to. I think we need to make sure to sneak at least one fox type blind creature into the cube. Yeah, they'll be. They are there. definitely part of Kamigawa. Okay, so our next card is a pretty iconic one. We've got Konda, Lord of a Ganjo. 5WW for a 3-3 three, three legendary human samurai uh, with Vigilance, Vigilance <laughs> Bushido 5, uh, and Indestructible. So I think that this is actually our very first uh, Vigilance card of the set and kind of a good time to you know talk about how that was made a keyword in this set. But I, I just want to say about Kanda that I remember being so excited when I was many years ago when I pulled this card from a, a booster pack. I was so excited when I got him. I had actually read one of the Kamigawa novels before I got this card, and it just felt like so awesome to have this card that was an embodiment of a character who is basically the book's sort of quasi-villain, this figure who has kind of betrayed humanity um, in pursuit of power and has angered the kami, angered the gods. Yeah, one of the first, uh, first white villains, I think, in Magic's history. Yeah, yeah, and there was actually this a, a conscious story decision was made to have the villain of this block be a white card, Kanda, and the mm-hmm. hero of this block, Toshiro Umizawa, be a black card. Unfortunately, we're not going to see him until Betrayers. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, this is a, a pretty iconic card. Yeah, and I think I, I was just double checking this. I think also the first uh, non-artifact creature to have uh, Indestructible. There's also uh, oh, the wow. Myogen cycle in the set, uh, which we'll get to in a minute, uh, who have Indestructible. But I think he's the first kind of human mortal creature to have Indestructible, which is which is which made him feel super cool when he released. It just the Bushido Five and the Indestructible new keyword, um, just super splashy card back in the day. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so on that new keyword note, uh, Vigilance, which is of course a uh, you know a very common kind of staple keyword in the game now, which just means attacking doesn't cause the creature to tap. Um, before this set, before Champions of Kamigawa, uh, this was not a keyworded ability. This was something that was written out as rules text on any card that had it. Uh, 
uh, and it was officially made a keyword in Champions of Kamigawa, and Kanda is the first card that we're seeing that uh, has Vigilance. And Bushido 5, of course. That's a lot of Bushido. That's a, that is so much Bushido. This, might, this must be the most Bushido any card. ever I think that had, is right? the most Bushido. There may be another samurai we see later that has some flexible Bushido that could theoretically get higher, but 5 is definitely the highest printed yeah. Bushido we're going to see. Yeah, I also love the art, like the contrast here. He's this, you know, super old dude. You know, he looks like 90 years old, and yet he's super badass. I believe canonically the reason he's badass is that he stole. Um, so the, the reason the spirits and the mortals have gone to war is that Kanda stole basically the spirit world baby, uh, mm-hmm. which is which is called It That Was Taken, which is a pretty on-the-nose name, but I like it. Uh, and I'm not quite clear. Did he steal it to become immortal? I think that's why he's indestructible and super badass, but I'm not totally clear on that part. So if, uh, yeah. You know, I, I would need to reread the, the novels <laughs> to be sure about this. I need to do a lore check. Um, but I, I think that he he stole it to become immortal, but there was also something in there about him protecting his kingdom and he's sort of this mm-hmm. uh, deranged tragic figure who you know had the right the best interests of his kingdom at heart when he stole it but then this power has uh kind of made him lose it and also given him indestructibility black or red or something yeah he still believes he's doing the right thing yes so very very flavorful card i i really you know appreciate cards like this that you know, tie the mechanics in with the story, whether or not you know the story. Like you can tell from the mechanics here that they're hmm. that this is supposed to be, uh, you know, a really iconic and and powerful figure in this world. Yeah, one of those rare cards where the I mean, the actual rules text here is incredibly simple, right? He's just got three keywords: vigilance, Bushido five, indestructible. But it, uh, you know, it he feels powerful and splashy and unique just from that combination of the the abilities and the type line or the. Uh, the stat line and the casting cost. Right. So I think now... we we probably disagree about how powerful he actually is. Yeah. So I, I gave Conda an auto-include wow. because I feel like he's so... I mean, <laughs> I'm not going to argue that he's a great card by any stretch of the modern imagination. Um, but at least to me, he's just so iconic and such a... You know, feels like a card that any white samurai deck should have and try to find some way to to get to um, that I just want him to be in there. I'm fine including him. I'm, I have him as a meh. I really look just at playability there. And uh, I think even by Kamigawa's standards, like seven mana, three, three. So I think the main problem with Kanda is, is that he is a three, three at the end of the day. Like Bushido five is enormous. It beats everything. Um, the problem is he does attack as a 3-3, and so your opponent can pretty plausibly just ignore him on offense for quite a while. Now, I guess he does hold down the fort fairly well on defense, minus the lack of reach, uh, and I think inarguably the best big creatures in the set are the dragons that we'll be getting to uh, the first of soon, uh, and he he looks uh, he doesn't stack up quite so well against the dragons. <laughs> I, I'm fine throwing one of them in there just because he's cool, but uh, I think on playability, he's going to... I don't know how much he's going to do for us. Yeah, I don't think he's I don't think he's going to shine, but I do want him in there. It is a bit sad that all the dragons I mean, it's not sad for the dragons that they all have flying, but it's sad for Conda that he can't fight them. It it would be a sad dragon if they uh didn't have flying. Yeah. This really I think highlights one of the problems with having Bushido as like a central mechanic in white. 
is it's really hard to make a powerful card with Bushido as a central mechanic because if you know if if its stats are anything close to if its baseline stats are anything close to where they should be for the mana cost, which of course with Kanda they're not. With Kamigawa, uh, they're not really. With Kamigawa, they're not. <laughs> you know, if the stats are close to the mana cost, uh, to where they should be with the mana cost, then you really can't have a very big Bushido number. And if you don't have a very big Bushido number, at least in this era of magic, you can't have a very big number. And if you don't have a very big Bushido number, then it's sort of like, what's the point of having it on there at all? Yeah, and I think it's particularly challenging. You know, I think this is a little less true in Kamigawa, but in general, right? Like white white the role of white creatures is largely to um get in and aggro your opponent um you know the classic cube mono white archetype is mono white aggro um mm-hmm. you know it's little cheap dudes getting in there chipping in for damage uh early and uh, uh you know the fact that many of the uh otherwise weenie creatures in this have bushido means they're not they don't fill that role quite as as well he's no isamaru yeah, he's, he's this guy's definitely no Isamaru. Um, his dog outshines him in, in my view. <laughs> oh no, I know. Well, isn't that true of a lot of us though? I'm fine calling him an auto include single. I don't know if he'll make it all the way to the end of the the coals, but I'm, I'm fine starting him in there. All right. I, I'm also going to try to capture from now on. There are so many legends in Kamigawa, and I'm curious to see how many EDH decks uh, each of them helm on each EDH rec. So Kanda, um heads up 47 EDH Rex, which is a small number, but still more than I expected. Because I, apart from being the iconic samurai leader, it's kind of hard to see why, what would pull you into building a deck around him. Yeah, that's an expensive commander <laughs> for one that does this. Yeah, seven mana commander that just comes in as a 3-3 with no abilities is uh, is tough. So a uh, shout out to those 47 uh, lovers of Kanda. All right, uh, let's talk about one of Kanda's buddies, Kanda's Hatamoto. 1W for a 1-2 uh, human samurai with Bushido 1. Uh, and as long as you control a legendary samurai, Kanda's Hatamoto gets plus 1, plus 2, and has Vigilance. So a 1-2 with Bushido that becomes a 2-4 with uh, Bushido and Vigilance um, for 2. I think this guy is totally playable. He's not getting any uh, pulses racing, um, but his stat line for Kamigawa is totally adequate. Uh, he attacks kind of okay. He blocks pretty decent for a two drop. Uh, and I like the way he pulls you on a little journey to try to build around him. Uh, obviously, Kanda jumps out at you here, but there's other, um, uh, we'll, we'll just call them more affordable white samurai we've already talked about, legendary white samurai we've already talked about, like uh, Eight and a Half Tails. Uh, and I, I like how he sends you on a little quest to try to pair him up. Oh, wait, Eight and a Half Tails isn't a samurai. No. Uh-oh. How many legendary samurai are there? No, we do. We do have a couple couple more there's a total of five white legendary samurai okay uh, if you include bushy tenderfoot's flip as well uh, <laughs> not i'm not going to allow oh but sensei golden tail is a legendary samurai and we love him yeah yeah we um, liked we liked uh yeah okay okay we have we can uh, make this work. general coming up we have know. kentaro in the next set we got all the red legend we can make this work yeah yeah i i definitely want him in He's at least a build around, if not playable. Yeah, I have him as just a playable and like maybe starting him on three. I feel like he's just a three quantity. I think he's just a nice glue card for the the white decks. Yeah, let's do it. Boom. All right, our next card, going back to some spirit action here, is Lantern Kami. Uh, One white mana for a 1-1 spirit with flying. That's it. Uh, This is 
one of the strangest pieces of art in this in this set, which is full of very very strange art. Oh, it's so good. It might be my it might be my favorite um, Kami art, or even my favorite art from the block. I love this. Wow, art. that's so that's so interesting. Could, try can you try to describe it? Oh no! Oh no! That's putting me on the spot. Okay, so I'll start by saying it's by John Avon, uh, who's one of the all-time great magic artists. He's largely known for lands uh, because he has a really nice, pretty photorealistic style with just enough painterliness to it that it doesn't just look like a render or something. Um, So this art, it's like we're up in the sky uh, and there's sort of a purple-yellow sunset or something in the background. And then our creature in the foreground is sort of this purple fleshy spiky kind of i don't know almost like a flower or a coral or something with all these yellow lanterns around it i'm not doing it justice just look it up it's very abstract very otherworldly it looks like something it's kind of like something from a horror story or something it's it's very creepy it's leaning heavy on creepy which is nice and unusual in a white card without being like it's not like going all the way to body horror or something it's just very otherworldly. Yeah, it's it's so interesting to me that this is one of your favorite pieces of art in the set because I feel like looking at this, there's just there's almost uh, no you know familiar form for my mind to kind of grab onto. Yeah, he's you wrecking I mean? your mind. Exactly, he, he is. So I like I don't, I don't dislike this art, and I don't really find it you know disgusting or disturbing or anything. But I just you know other than the like the skill of John Avon. Um, I just like, don't know what to like or dislike about it. It's just, it's so abstract. Yeah. It doesn't have like a strong focal point exactly. Or yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't kind of pull you in or tell a story, but just from a technical level, I appreciate it. I appreciate how unusual it is for a white card. And I appreciate how it kind of like a couple other cards we already talked about, like uh, the hand with the arch on its back. What was that called? Uh, Kami of the Painted Road. You know, some of these just go super hard in this very strange, very abstract, very kind of spirit world uh, aesthetic dimension. And I like that. Yeah. Uh, I guess we should talk about whether it's playable too. Um, I I think it's meh, but I think you you think a little more highly of Lantern Kami. Yeah. I mean, I I rated this playable because I feel like it is, it's one of the few cards, at least in Champions, that does fit into that kind of white weenie archetype that we were just discussing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, a, a one, one for one is nothing amazing, but the flying means you're at least, you know, going to get in for some chip damage, or you can block, for example, an opponent's dragon in one attack, just chump block it. Um, it's, it's not that it's Ooh. some great or <laughs> incredible card, but it's like, sorry, that second use case. Not, I mean, I'm not, I, well, not we were just me. talking about COD that can't do it. So I'm just trying to, you know, compare to COD. But I want my cards to win, Connor. I want them to win too, but you're not going to find that in this set. <laughs> Somebody, somebody's got to win This is game. as good as it gets. Yeah. Um, I, I think it, it's not quite as good as it looks just because the difference between one power and two power on a weenie creature is so huge. You know, it's the difference between a 20 turn clock and a 10 turn clock, which might sound kind of like, you know, duh super obvious but i i do think it the impact on the game of these kind of suntail hawk although we should we call them suntail hawks they should be called lantern commies in my view anyway the, the impact on the game of these kind of one one flyers is just generally pretty weak but i think we start him out and if he if he doesn't perform we we call i don't know yeah. why i'm calling it he it's definitely an it give we call it give it a chance 
All right, we'll give it. We'll give it a chance. I don't know if I'm with. I, maybe we do need That's to go four, high on multiples. I don't know. Four just feels like too many. For, I, I said four copies, yeah. but it just feels like. Does the Spiritcraft tech deck care about this, or is the board impact just too small? I think I think you're looking to Spiritcraft into something a little better than a Lantern Kami. Yeah, I'm. I'm just thinking about you know soul shifting and having this be the only spirit in your graveyard and being pretty sad. Yeah, the other funny thing about this is I feel like this actually isn't for the spirit deck. You know, this is really for the white weenie deck that yeah, largely this is samurai. Kind of more with the samurai. Yeah, he's he's a traitor. It's a traitor. I keep calling it he. Yeah, it's why do you keep, he. Why do you keep know. calling him a he? Calling I just said calling him a he. I don't why know. do you call I, it? Maybe, a he? I've just in, I've invested myself so much into lantern kami over the last eighteen years of my life. You know, I just can't I can't separate my identity from that of the the lantern kami. I see myself in it. It's a little worrying. I don't know. Three of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's do three. Just because who wants to look at four of them, you know? Me. All right. Let's talk about Masako the Humorless. Masako is two and a W for a 2-1 human advisor. Legendary. Uh, you may play her anytime you could play an instant. And tapped creatures you control may block as though they were untapped. So... Three mana, two, one flash that lets your tapped creatures block. This is a hard one to evaluate. I believe this effect is literally unique in the history of magic. It's kind of fun as like a surprise potential. It's strange to have both this and Call to Glory in the same set because they both fill the same kind of, aha, gotcha kind of role. It's just the stat line, even by Kamigawa standards, is just so bad. Like her whole thing is to enable a surprise block and reversal but she doesn't have any any toughness to to back it up with. Like if she was a two two or a one three or something, I feel like she'd be a lot more meaningful. Yeah, it's just an effect like this, like tapped creatures you control may block as though they were untapped. You know, that's that's something that you want on a creature or on a card that is going to stick around for a little bit and let you right. get some value out of it. And a two one is not going to stick around for a little bit. Yeah, because she also can't crash back in on offense because she'll she'll trade with a freaking lantern commie. You know, it's just hard to right. see. And then as a trick, the trick is kind of, I mean, at that point, I think I'd rather have Call to Glory as bad as it is because at least that can potentially boost some of my creatures and let me win combats. So I don't have business winning. Yeah, this is essentially just a three mana, you know, creature, target creature you control that is tapped can block as though it wasn't. Well, it's all your creatures. It's all yeah, your creatures, but yeah. it, I... I don't know. It's it's hard to see that really working. Yeah. It's another example where um, I, I feels, I think we talked about this earlier. It feels like white's design space at this era of magic is just so circumscribed. Like they haven't come up with oblivion ring and all these other things that define white in the more recent era of magic. And they've gotten rid of all the feel bads. And so like, you're just left with two cards in this set that let, Creatures that couldn't normally block, block, for example. And that's just not, it's just, it's not doing it. Yeah, it's just a, a lot of uh, kind of sad combat tricks. Uh, what do you think about the art here? I I really dislike this art. Really? It's, so it's huh. it's showing Masako, who I guess is like a an advisor to Konda. Um, and she is looking straight at the viewer uh, against a symmetrical background. Her the costume is almost completely symmetrical. The way that this mm -hmm. painting is framed is almost totally symmetrical. And mm. I'm really not a fan of that. <laughs> Doesn't that amplify her humorlessness, though? I suppose. 
that she's just like so straight edge that everything needs to be exactly in its place. I, I, I mean, I guess I can kind of appreciate that kind of call to the humorlessness, but I just, I don't like the look of this card. Huh. I, so I, I kind of appreciate it because I like her wry grin contrasted with her humorlessness. You know, I'm also noticing she has some extremely um, intense collarbone going on here. I mean, yeah. she is, she's got some tendons. It's impressive. Strong neck. She's like an F1 driver or something. Like her <laughs> neck is powerful. Also, I saw you mention in the comments and I noticed this too. Her clothing doesn't look Japanese to me at all. I mean, I don't know much about historical Japanese clothing, but it doesn't, this looks like a Regency era English costume right? or something. Right. Like it just does not. I mean, you know, maybe the the headpiece kind of thing that she's yeah. wearing is vaguely, you know, kind of mythical Japanese looking, but the yeah, the clothes are just seem totally out of place. I think I've I think I'm realizing why your neck's so strong. Look at that that headpiece must really That's got away a lot. Can you imagine balancing that all day? No wonder she's humorless. Yeah. Wow. So I think we both have this as kind of a mess singleton. I, I guess she can make it in. I just, uh, I don't know. I don't even. She, and she's not even I'm a samurai. I know she, I know she should be an advisor flavor wise, but she would play so much better if she was a samurai. Yeah. Maybe a human samurai advisor, but that, that kind of like three part creature type, I think is. It's new. Yeah. It's like, I don't, I don't think that even existed at this time. The idea that you could have a human advisor samurai it was just sort of a race class idea of human class advisor yeah this was before the modern era where we started making like elf jellyfish clerics or whatever we have now (laughs) i'm fine with just cutting masako let's just cut her i don't want to pain you aesthetically in this one thing with this is there's no we don't need to have any room in a kamigawa cube for art that isn't 10 out of 10 Bang and great because yeah, almost every that piece is, is very true. There is plenty of amazing art in this set. We don't need to be looking at once we don't like. All right, see you, Masako. Oh wait, I forgot to say her EDH rec count. Uh, Fifty-four decks are uh, headed by Masako. The same, really? nearly the same. No, more than Konda, which also is what? baffling to me. Hmm. I guess at least she's cheap. You know, she's got that going over Konda. Like an EDH, yeah. like Konda's never doing anything. At least she can come into play and then do very little. The, the, the terrible thing there is though, she doesn't have uh you lose the surprise factor because she's just in your command zone. So <laughs> I guess she's kind of a threat. I don't know. I guess. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Just stall out the game. All right. Okay. A- actually, I have one more thing to say about Masako. As, mm-hmm. as much as I dislike this card, I can't seem to stop talking about her. One, one of the, you know, very unusual things about Kamigawa is that all of the rare creatures in this set, all of them are legendary and Masako, which is cool. cool. It's sort of flavor and theme wise. And that was one of the central themes of Kamigawa during design was legends. Like we are going to have a lot of legendary creatures in this set. Uh, And, you know, one of the ways it was conceived of to do that was to have every single uh, rare creature be a legend. But that means that some of those legendary creatures just have to be bad. Uh, not every rare creature can be amazing or even good. Some of them have to be bad, and Masako, I think, is one of those. Okay, now I'm done. Let's move on to Moth Rider Samurai. This is three white for a 2-2 human samurai with flying and Bushido 1. Yep. Uh, nothing amazing here. 
but I feel like the flying plus a Bushido is like just barely enough for Mothrider Samurai to at least make a first cut. I agree. Now, I, I, I want to quibble with the idea there's nothing amazing because I think riding a moth is pretty cool. I mean, that is pretty, pretty dope. Like, not only is it a cool concept, but I think it's really well realized in the art. Um, like, he just looks uh, incredibly cool. His moth is somehow kind of cuddly. It's almost got like an owl face on it and little horns. Yeah. So it's a cute, cute moth. And then you got this guy and there's a moon behind him. So it's got this almost 70s sci-fi look with all the purple and... Yeah, the, it's a very, very kind of monochrome. It's like riding over the moon or something. I think that's another lore thing, like the plains surrounding Egonjo, which is like the the castle that Kanda is the shogun of. I think like those plains have all been devastated by the war or something. So he's, he's like riding over these ruined plains surrounding Egonjo. Oh, that's why there's all these craters. Okay, all right, it's coming together. We're slowly piecing together the story of this block. I'm happy to report there's actually two other Moth Riders. There's one in Saviors, and then the new uh, Neon Dynasty Kamigawa set also has a Moth Rider. So that makes me happy. Oh, wow. I love that. Yeah. Isn't that great? That's awesome. They're still riding them. Uh, Yeah, I think this thing's thing's like meh. It's like you throw a couple in. You're not super thrilled to have it, but it'll it'll fill a spot in the curve. Yeah. And give us another Samurai. Yeah, meh. All right. Yeah, and I think two of them. Just I think so. Feels like two. Great. Let's talk about Myogen of Cleansing Fire. Five W W W. That's eight mana. Uh, for a four six legendary spirit. Uh, Myogen of Cleansing Fire comes into play with a divinity counter on it if you played it from your hand. It's indestructible as long as it has a divinity counter on it. And you can remove the divinity counter to destroy each other creature. So eight mana, four, six, uh, indestructibility. And if you get rid of the indestructibility, you kill every other creature. Uh, I vacillated on this a long time. Um, These are super cool, super iconic cards. Uh, I also think they're uh, really probably very bad. Um, Eight mana is a lot, even in Kamigawa Limited. Like the color requirement here is intensive. You need three pips of white eight mana is really high. Like that's turn 11, probably turn 12. Like there's no ramp in white. There's basically no ramp in the whole set um, with just a handful of exceptions. Um, I I don't know. I just don't think this gets there. But that art, the art is dope. Connor, you talk about the art while I prepare more arguments about why it still isn't good. It is so cool. So this is a, a Kev Walker piece. Kev Walker has done a lot of amazing dragon art in magic and just a lot of great art in magic generally. Um, but what he's painted here is uh, this uh, sort of humanoid figure wearing these flowing white robes with what look like six katanas coming out from behind him uh, arrayed in this sort of star pattern. Uh, and then behind that is this giant kind of fan with more blades sticking out of it. This is also a very symmetrical piece of art, a little bit like Masako the Humorless, but this one is actually good. Um, And there's just enough kind of asymmetry with these five sort of floating flaming orbs or skulls around him. I can't quite tell what they are. Mm -hmm. Um, And just a really, really 
cool and really powerful looking spirit. And the, the Myogen, um, again, there's one in each color in this set, are sort of uh, the closest thing that we see to a god, I guess. So they, they're supposed to be more powerful than pretty much any other spirit in this set, uh, thematically or like flavor-wise, um, which is why they have this indestructible or this divinity counter on them. Uh, so he is supposed to be, you know, different from the rest of the Kami, not just a regular spirit. Hmm. Yeah. And it looks like Kev Walker did the art for all five of these. And I would say I'm not too into, in love with, uh, Myogen of Life's Web, the green one, but all the others just have spectacular art, like technically accomplished, interesting, uh, figures, um, just really compelling pieces. Yep. Uh, that said, I, I still don't think this card is good enough. Um, I don't think it's castable. I think the fact that it only gets the divinity counter if you played it from your hand is pretty rough. Like I, I think the effect here is honestly medium enough that even if you allowed people to cheat it into play, it wouldn't be overpowered. It would just be decent. So yeah, I think I, I will say this is probably the best or second best of the Myogen. Like I think it's downhill largely from here, but I still don't think it's very good. Yeah. Yeah, I think I I probably have too much of a soft spot for this card, but I the ability is just so cool and of course uh, an iconic ability in white, the board wipe. I rated this auto include, but I'm well, let me build it back up because I do think there's two things that maybe maybe I'm wrong on here. So one is the interaction with Spiritcraft is pretty decent because it's at that point it becomes fairly asymmetrical wiping the board because you have you mean soul all shift? these spirits, oh, soul shift, sorry. Um that are going to trigger uh, when you uh, when you remove the counter. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. If you have you know a, a white spirit deck, but I I feel like the drawback with that is, um, you know, a, a lot of the good white cards are samurai, right? And I, I I don't think there's very many good white spirits at least in this set. Maybe later in the block we'll run into a few, but are there really that many white spirits you want to bring back after the Myogen has wiped the board? Um, and also like four, huh? Yeah. It looks like there's only five, uh, soul shifting white cards in the block. That's pretty rough. That's right. And with this, this mana commitment for Myogen, you're going to have a bit of a tough time, you know, having that many non-white creatures and still getting the Myogen out. And the, the four, six stat line is also a problem, you know, both because that's not uh, very big for eight mana, but after you've wiped the board with the Myogen, um, that's not very much damage to be swinging in with. You know, your opponent is probably going to have several turns to try to rebuild after mm-hmm. this wipe, and the Myogen is not going to uh, get that much damage in there in the meantime. It does look like it should fly. It seems like they should all fly, right? <laughs> Yeah, they all are fly. I mean, it should fly in the sense that it's literally flying in the art. Yeah, up in the clouds. Yeah. Um, it looks like we're getting a new cycle of Myogen in the Commander set that accompanies uh, the new Kamigawa set. Uh, and I appreciate that. Uh, yeah. And one interesting little design thing is, so these need, these get divinity counters um, and then have an additional ability that gives them indestructible when they have a divinity counter. Uh, and the new Myogen used the, you know, ability counter technology that they've developed since the set was released to just get indestructible counters, which is a nice little bit of uh, um, simplifying. So oh. that's kind of cool. Yeah, I like that. On Kind of on that note, uh, this was 
Kamigawa was only the second block to have indestructibility in it. The first one, of course, was Mirrodin with the Dark Steel cards, which had indestructible. Um, but uh, the thinking in design and development back then was still that indestructible was a dangerous ability and possibly too strong. Um, so in order to make cards like the Myogen not be broken, which I think they definitely are not now, no. uh, the indestructibility was, you know, given to them as, as a temporary thing that they would have to give up for their full. Yeah. I mean, if you picture this like eight mana, four, six, um, indestructible, and it comes into play with the wrath of God counter that you remove once. Uh, and then it's left as a four, six indestructible. <laughs> I think by modern magic standards, that still seems really cute and uh, harmless. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. so sad. I know it's power creep. What are we um, going to do with this guy? I think we, I think, uh, I think we throw him in. So we, we already cut one uh, forgettable white legend, right? We cut Masako. Yep. So I think we let, um, actually appropriate for the story, we let Konda and the Myogen kind of battle it out to see which one of them, um, which one of these overcosted white uh, legendaries overcosted should make it in? Overcosted weak white one. legendaries. I like it. Yeah. Meh. Okay. Uh, oh, wait. Oh, I forgot the critical how many EDH wrecks oh, question. This is important. There is one deck on EDH rec uh, headed by the Myogen of Cleansing One Fire. hero. Just one. Yeah, one brave soul. Boy, I'm trying to imagine what else would be in that. We should do a, a separate episode just about that deck. Uh, deck tech. Yeah, we should we should <laughs> we should try it out and see. How it's it probably does. like a shopping list or something. Oh, uh. oh, the Myogen. Well, let's go back to the human world uh, with a, yet another legend. This is Nagao, bound by honor. Three W for a three three legendary human samurai, um, who's uncommon by the way. He has Bushido one, and whenever he attacks, samurai you control get plus one plus one until end of turn. Um. I think this is probably one of the best samurai in the set, if not the block. I I really like this card. I think yeah, it's very this is fun. A really good one, and I I think he I I rated him as playable. He's almost an auto include now that I'm sort of reading it all aloud. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I still think the power on this is it's not extraordinary. But like, if you no. contrast him with the Mothrider samurai, first he pulls you into a deck in a way that's fun. And then second, yeah, I mean, he's a four mana, four, four when he gets blocked. That's, that's not nothing in Kamigawa. That's pretty solid uh, stat line. Well, when, uh, when he gets blocked, he's a five, five. Cause he's, oh, he triggers on himself. You're right. He buffs himself with the ability and he's got Bushido. He's a five, five. I mean, that's extraordinary. Holy yeah, that, that doesn't get better than that in this set. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. Why are we even talking about it? Get this guy in the yeah, queue. Two of them. Let's get two of them in. Let's get two of them in. All right. I like I like having two. That presents a slight tension. Um, I presume, uh, this is going to sound bad. I presume these uh, white uh, like ribbons floating on his back are some kind of traditional thing or callback. Uh, but to be honest, when I was whatever 14 looking at this set, I just thought they looked like toilet paper. Well, it's, it looks like he got two I, I completely, I completely <laughs> agree with that. And I think it was probably around that time when our house did get TP'd. And oh, that's right. People did put toilet paper in this awakened a tree. trauma. Yeah. yeah, people did TP a tree, like outside our house. It looked like what Nagao is wearing on his back. Yeah, to be <laughs> to be uh, to to take a slight detour. So we grew up in a sort of modernist house, very unique house um, that has 
big kind of curving living room and it's all white. It's very fifties. Um, and it looks honestly for all the world from the street, like a toilet. Uh, and so it was often called the toilet house. And I'm actually amazed we didn't get TP'd more often. I think it only happened two or three times. It should have happened more. It's just too perfect. All right. Auto include two. We, we love Nagao. EDH rec does not. There's only uh, nine decks, sadly. Oh, that's pretty good for Nagao. an uncommon samurai from Kamigawa. Yeah. Yeah, but how is he beaten by Masako the Humorless? I mean, I come on. I don't know why anyone is using Masako as their commander. I'm I'm not going to argue against Masako. Okay. All right. Let's talk about Otherworldly Journey. This is one and a W for an instant arcane. Remove target creature from the game. At end of turn, return that creature to play under its owner's control with a plus one, plus one counter on it. So two mana, blink a thing, and it comes back with a one, one counter. I think it's kind of meh. Um, I, I think it, it has an interesting place in magic's history is one of the earliest white blink effects, which has gone on to become a really iconic central part of white. The problem with blinking in this set is there's basically nothing to blink, uh, looking, there's only a handful of enter the battlefield effects in the set. You know, there's the myogen, which you could refresh their counter, I guess. Well, no, you can't. Oh no, they got to come in from your hand. No. Okay, so there's essentially nothing because the other one is there's the there's a cycle from Saviors that ends in Ona and they're oh, all terrible. No. They're so um, bad. So there's just nothing. The, it seems like a decent card, but there's nothing to blink for value. And so all this really gets you is saving a creature from removal and getting a counter, which I don't know if that's quite worth a card. What it really gets you is some incredible art. Yeah, it sure does. Talk about it. Boy, where to where to start with this? So this is an arcane card, so it's supposed to be you know kind of a spirit spell that's being cast here. Um, on the left side of the art is what looks like this sort of giant tortoise dragon spirit creature that is, I guess, breathing out some haze, some time or something, some time some, haze, some magic uh, toward a lone warrior standing on the edge of a cliff, and within that time haze that he's breathing um is basically the moon it basically looks yeah, like the moon exactly he's going to the moon or like i guess now that you've edu- educated me that um the land around a ganja was cratered like this he's going to some extra you know devastated version of the Aganjo landscape where everything has been obliterated. Yeah, but it's basically the moon. It's, it's going nighttime moon. in Blue this, moon. in this other world that the tortoise is breathing. Um, but it's just a really, really beautiful and cool piece of art. Yeah, I hadn't really uh, heard of this or noticed Vance Kovac's name before as an artist. And I'm scrolling through his Scryfall list and he's done a few other pieces that are somewhat notable, like... The cards may be more notable, like Sudden Shock, uh, the original Verdant Catacombs, uh, Burst Lightning. But this is the only one that really jumps out at me is just, wow, this is a stunningly cool piece. This is this is an awesome piece of art. Yeah. I love this turtle. It's like so scary. It reminds me of Shadow of the Colossus, honestly. Oh, it's totally got that vibe with the lone hero. Yeah, and these sort of tiny glowing eyes on the this massive turtle yeah and kind of like shadow of the colossus to be honest in this picture i identify with the turtle not the lone warrior like i'm kind of rooting for the turtle i didn't really notice the warrior at first yeah awesome awesome art 
Um, I don't know if we include this card, to be honest. I think it, I think it probably wouldn't be totally embarrassing, but I just, I feel like this is always like the second, like you're down to, you have 42 cards in the deck. You need to cut two. This is the 42nd card you cut. And then you have to make a harder decision. You know what I mean? Like I just, does this ever make the deck? Yeah. I, I mean, I really think the problem is there's just no, there's no point in flickering in this set there's nothing to flicker and we kind of talked about this when we were looking at uh hikari twilight guardian uh earlier on like it's a cool ability mm-hmm. and one that is going to become much more relevant in white in the future but in kamigawa it's just not doesn't really have any kind of benefit outside of this plus one plus one counter so i gave this yeah, there's just no support i gave this playable but i think we should just cut it Honestly. Yeah, let's just cut it. It's interesting that they even included it. You know, like I, I guess it has the removal saving aspect, but it's just weird to have this in a set that has no ETB abilities at all. Like even in Astral Slide, you know, kind of the original flick, uh, flicker blink effect uh, two years earlier. Like there's a lot more in uh, Onslaught Block that lets you play with Enter the Battlefield value than in in Kamigawa Block. All right. So next up we have Pious Kitsune, two W for a one two Fox Cleric. Uh, This is a strange one, so bear with me here. At the beginning of your upkeep, put a devotion counter on Pious Kitsune. Then, if a creature named Eight and a Half Tails is in play, you gain one life for each devotion counter on Pious Kitsune. He also has tap, remove a devotion counter from Pious Kitsune. You gain one life. Uh, So uh, this is a card that synergizes specifically with Eight and a Half Tails, who we talked about earlier, uh, and basically can slowly gain you a bunch of life uh if you happen to have both of both pious kitsune and eight and a half tails in play at the same time and then also has this minor tap ability that you know lets you gain a little bit of life even if the head kitsune eight and a half tails isn't is not in play i hate this card do not like it at all this i've i've never liked this sort of like named card specific synergy like this feels like a Yu-Gi-Oh card to me yes like naming this one specific other card that you need to have in play for this to be even a little bit viable and even then probably not viable yeah it cuts to me that the naming a specific card like cuts against the thing that that makes magic kind of unique among TCGs like coming from Pokemon and then Yu-Gi-Oh that like magic is built up of it's like Lego it's built of all these little building blocks that are all kind of flexible on their own. But the the fun part is just the interactions among them and the, as Richard Garfield called it, emergent gameplay that you get. Yeah. And so I just, I really don't like these cards that point at a specific card. It just feels, it feels alien to the, the fundamental like design identity of magic. Right. Well, it just, it tells you exactly what card you're supposed to have in play to make this relevant. And that, yeah, that, that takes away uh, kind of the most interesting part of the game. Yeah, I, happily, I think it's we don't have a dilemma here because Ugh. even ignoring that, the card itself is just awful. This is a terrible card. So it's three mana for a one-two, and the base is you gain one life a turn at the cost of tapping it, incidentally. But even if you have eight and a half tails, it's still bad. So the ba- like, so you play this on three, turn four you gain one life. Then turn five, you gain two life. Turn six, you gain three. And like at any point, this could just die. Getting pretty crazy here. I know this card is so bad. It's just terrible. Yeah. Definite insta cut. 
Yeah, easy Instacut. I, I do want to, like, this is a little long, but I look at Gatherer for each of these cards, and there's a very long comment on this card that I honestly can't tell if it's a joke or not, so I'm just going to read it and let you tell me. When you're running eight and a half tails, which many times you generally just are in the first place, this card can be a powerful auxiliary. Sure, it takes a while to rev up, which, granted, pretty much takes it out of the running for DCI-managed legacy games. Just going to pause mm-hmm. there. But you get this thing running into the late game and you'll be getting a ridiculous amount of life every turn. Eventually, it just reaches the point where your opponent really can't hit you fast enough to stop the life game. But the real kicker of all this is that your opponent can't even bolt your PS Kutsune or do any other such nonsense. As for mere three mana, your eight and a half tails can make Pius Kutsune have protection from whatever color it is that's trying to screw with you. And after the two mana kick up, all it takes is just one mana for each spell. So if they try to double bolt you, it's just an extra mana to stop the second one. Like, I I don't think this is joking. And I just like, I can't parse, particularly a little aside about legacy. I just love of like, yeah, this guy's probably not making the cut for legacy. And I'm just like, <laughs> yeah, you do think? Probably not. It. He's just barely not making the, the varsity team. Yeah, you know, Kai Buda almost put him in, and then he said, you know, Pius Katsune, as much as I love you, you're just not quite there. Oh, man, it's, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what game this guy is playing where you would get to a point that Pius Katsune is getting you enough life every turn that he matters, and that you have enough mana that you're wasting it to protect Pius yeah. Katsune from bolts. Uh, maybe a lot of Kamigawa Seal, but I don't know. <sighs> yeah, all right. All right, he won't be in this Kamigawa Seal. All right, let's talk about Quiet Purity. Quiet Purity, W, Instant Arcane, Destroy, Target, Enchantment. I just, this is another one I just, I, I can't say anything about it. Like, I, at least Pius Katsune provokes a reaction for me. This is just like, this card exists. Yeah. You could put it in a deck, I guess. We talked about it. Yeah. Yep. I just want to cut it. I just, why? Why this would I ever want this? Just an insta-cut. I guess it's Arcane, but... You know, there's enough enchantment hate in white that we don't need a card that does nothing but that. As an aside, there is a lot of enchantment hate in this era of magic in white. Like Onslaught Block has a ridiculous amount. I think Mirrodin, I don't know how much Mirrodin has, but then Kamigawa comes in strong with yet more enchantment hate. I don't really understand why this was so important to white's identity. Hmm. All right, Instacut. Nice, easy one. Next card is Reciprocate. One white mana for an instant. Remove from the game target creature that dealt damage to you this turn. I really like this card, and it always seemed really, really powerful to me back in the day when we started playing Magic, When we, especially when we got into Kamigawa, and there's so many weak cards. Here is this card that for just one white mana, not just gets rid of a creature, but completely exiles it for just one mana. I'll note that I had no idea at this time that Swords to Plowshares existed. (laughs) (laughs) And I wasn't really um, thinking that carefully about the fact that you have to let the creature deal damage to you first before you can reciprocate. But still, one white mana. Uh, I I still think it's very playable in our cube too. Yeah, I think it's totally playable. It's definitely not Swords to Plowshares, and we could talk more about that. But, um, you know, I was thinking about it. I, I Was there a Swords to Plowshares printed between this and Swords to Plowshares? I think this was the first time that Wizards kind of tiptoed back into the Sol- Swords for Plowshares design space. Hmm. Yeah, I'm looking at uh, I'm looking at gather history. There was Unified Strike from Onslaught, which exiles an attacking creature if its power is less than or equal to the number of soldiers. 
um, which is which is somehow much worse than this. Um, but I think, yeah, I think this was the first kind of real attempt at a Swords to Plowshares type single white mana exile a thing removal spell since Swords to Plowshares uh, went out of uh, standard print. Interesting. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, I think this is just an auto include. Uh, it, okay, so disadvantages. Um, you have to get a hit first. Um, that means you're never you're not hitting utility creatures. You know, you can't use this, for example, to get rid of Kabuto Moth. Um, it's not clearing the way offensively when you need to get in and close out the game. Um, it's not that great to stabilize because again, they have to hit you first. So if it's a big creature, like you're gonna you're gonna take some damage. Um, but I think it's still an auto include. Like the just the fact that it exiles alone. Like we're gonna talk talk about the first dragon here in a minute. Um, and there are some powerful death triggers in in Kamigawa that that exiling is it's really nice to have that ability. Yeah, yeah. And there's just not that much hard removal in in white in this block at all. So I think having this in there is a really good way to give white a little bit of a little bit more power. Yeah, this is I think this is pretty premium removal. Yeah. How many should we have? Uh, yeah, I was I was wondering that. It feels like two is the floor to me. Um, you know, mm-hmm. since we're doing multiples, I think having this kind of effect around is important. It's a good reason to be in white. I'm flirting with three. I wonder if that's oppressive to have that many swordsy effects running around. I kind of I kind of like starting with three because I think that the drawback, like this, is not swords to plowshares, no. um, <laughs> and the the many drawbacks of having to take damage from the creature that you did a great job of listing out. Um, I think make this would not make it too oppressive, even if one person gets all three copies. Yeah. All right. I think we, I like including three. Uh, one other thing that's funny about this card is it seems like such a staple, like you just read it and it's a simple, clean design fits right in. Um, doesn't seem, you know, it's certainly not at risk of being overpowered. Strangely, it's only been reprinted once it's, it was in a single dual deck. Um, it was in the Knights versus Dragons dual deck in 2011, and it's never been reprinted since in a standard set or anything else. And I'm not sure if that's because it's a little too good or way too weak. I guess we'll find out. Yeah. All right. Let's uh, let's throw three of them in. Let's do it. Uh, let's talk about Reverse the Sands. Six WW for a sorcery. Redistribute any number of players' life totals. Each of those players gets one life total back. This uh, this card is incredibly unique. I also think it has maybe the most confusing uh, oracle te- or printed rules text of uh, maybe not of any card. You know, it's no chains of Mephistopheles, but I found this card incredibly confusing. So the way it works is, if my life total is ten and yours is seventeen, I can trade them. So I have seventeen and you have ten. Now to me, it reads more naturally as like we add them up and then I can redistribute the total, right. but it doesn't work that way. And I, I've always found that just really counterintuitive. Absolutely. The first time I, I read this card many, many moons ago was like redistribute means you take everything from everybody and then you redistribute it the way that you want to. So it, it looks like what it should do is let you set yourself to, assuming you're both at 20, set yourself to 39 and your opponent to one. Yeah, I agree. It's very, very confusing. And it's also funny because it has reminder text that does, to my mind, nothing to clarify the central point of confusion. So yeah. the reminder text, again, is each of those players gets one life total back, which, like, as reading it, you're not confused about do the players get a life total back? Yeah. Because, duh. It should it's say, like, like he'll get some kind of life total. Yeah, it's a, it's a really confusing card in that sense. Uh, it is cool. I mean, there's no other effect in Magic that does anything even close to this. With good reason. 
Yeah, it's it's definitely not going in the cube um, for a whole bunch of reasons. Yeah. Should should we enumerate why this isn't uh, this isn't workable or playable? Yeah, I, I I guess we can get into that a little bit more. I I feel like it could be a cool political card in something like EDH, um, though it's definitely not a popular card even in that format. But the problem is like there's there's just too many things that need to line up for this card to reverse not only the sands but reverse the course of the game for you. You and your opponent need to each have life totals that are going to be advantageous for you after the reversal. So your life needs to be very low. Your opponent ideally is going to have quite a bit of life so that when you do the swap, you end up with a lot, they end up with a little. Um, But then you also need to have some way to actually finish them off. (laughs) This is what makes it so bad. Right, so you're spending eight mana to set something up with basically no guaranteed win on any future turn. And chances are... No effect on No effect on the board whatsoever. You know, if your opponent is swinging at you with a bunch of creatures, they've already gotten you really low and they have a lot of life left themselves, which is the ideal, then you're probably still going to lose. This isn't going to give you a bunch of creatures. Yeah, you're still losing the game. This isn't going to suddenly stop you from taking damage on your next turn. You've just spent eight mana buying yourself a little bit of time, maybe. It's kind of, you know, in a weird way, it's not that far from being an eight mana fog. Oh, man. You know, right. like, cause yeah. Cause like if you put it in quadrant theory, right. So if you're ahead, it's terrible, right? Like this does nothing for you if it's ahead, if, if you're ahead, um, if you're at parity and trying to break a stalemate again, this does very little, it might give you a very slight advantage in, in, you know, breaking parity, but not really. Cause that's about the board. Um, if you're in a race state, then I guess it might matter. If, like if you and your opponent are both battling to get each other low, but again, if you're racing, Probably your life totals are pretty close anyway. And then if you're behind, as we said, it still probably won't you're still behind. change the course of the game. Yeah, it's just, it's just a really bad card. Yeah. yeah, I think it's an Instacut, even though it's a cool, unique yep. card. With a really cool name. I do like the name here quite a yeah. lot. And pretty pretty cool art, pretty cool idea behind the card, but uh, pretty bad. Okay, our uh, next card here is Samurai Enforcers. 4WW for a 4-4 human samurai with Bushido 2. Nice and simple. Um, I I gave this card a meh only because it's a samurai and can benefit from the little bit of samurai synergy that we are seeing in this set. Um, But even with that said, this isn't even reliably a 6-mana 6-6. This is a 6-mana 4-4 that becomes a 6-6 only in combat, uh, which means it's really not much of a threat for your opponent and they have not much of an incentive to block uh, these beefy enforcers. So I was very down on this guy when I first read him and then I decided to just do a quick scryfall search to see how he stacks up against his fellow six drops. Uh-huh. Um, and this, this shows Kamigawa block for you. So there's 35 six drops in the block of those. If he gets into combat, he straight, defeats 26 out of 35 so he beats like 80 80 of the six drops in the set he trades with seven he might lose to a single one uh masumaro and then there's also himself samurai enforcers who he trades with so he's like he he either beats or trades with uh every other six drop in the set which is bizarre but true like he's 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 Vizardrix essentially and Vizardrix apparently is fine in Kamigawa. Oh, man. 
right? He's he's Vizardrix, uh, but less of a clock on your opponent's slide. Right, yeah, he's Vizardrix, but with less beat Wow, down. that really says a lot about Kamigawa. Now, despite our differing interpretations, it looks like we both landed on kind of a meh, let's throw two of them in and see what happens kind of verdict. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it was only meh for me instead of Instacut because they're Samurai and I want, I want Samurai to work. And this is sort of the biggest base stat line that we see on a Samurai. Throw a couple in. Yeah, you can throw two in. Sure. Um, uh, I'll briefly note this guy has like my least favorite, one of my least favorite types of magic flavor text. So his flavor text is from the moment they swore their oaths, they belong to their Lord sword and soul. Um, and I hate this kind of flavor text, not because it's bad per se, but just because it really says nothing. Like it might as just well just say samurai, 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 <laughs> samurai, samurai, samurai. Like there's just, there's nothing about it that <laughs> helps illustrate the world or tell a story or draw you in. It's just like, it just says nothing. And it really it really doesn't line up with the art very well either because the art, well, while it's pretty ugly, at least in my opinion, um, yeah, I agree. the art's pretty ugly, but it kind of tells maybe a story. You've, these enforcers are three samurai uh, and it looks like they're sort of standing in a crowd of uh, peasants, I guess, who... Very haggard. Very, very haggard. These peasants very, have suffered. They have suffered. And they're all green. They, they're all, they are green with suffering. And it looks like they're, it looks like some of them are maybe begging, some of the peasants are maybe begging the samurai for, for help or for food or for protection, who knows what. And the samurai are just, you know, stoically ignoring them. So the art sort of suggests that these guys are, you know, not the, you know, they're not the most soft hearted guys in the world. And the the name is Enforcer, which is like a mob connotation. Like they're kind of the thugs. So there's just sort of a, a weird mis- mismatch happening between the flavor text and the art and maybe also the name. And just it, it feels like a card where, you know, not a whole lot of thought went into how this card came together. Yeah, they could have like told a story, for example, of like between their mean art and their mean name. Like they could have told a story around Kanda yeah. here, you know, like how he's become they be, the samurai are no longer paying attention to the people's suffering they've forgotten why they fight you know like there was an opportunity to do something right, they've here forgotten what honor is yeah so kind of a, a missed opportunity yeah I, you know and it's it's especially tragic because this card is so iconic and widely played you know uh, this is this is the card that people think of when we say kamigawa and it's it's sad that they didn't do more with it I'm not sure it's a card people think of if we said um, six mana samurai from Kamigawa with Bushido too. I like, I think it's still, <laughs> they still struggle to bring it to memory, but he's still getting in the cube. How many of them? Uh, one, two. I don't know. I wish I had a dice. One. Nah, I said two. Let's do one. All right. A single, a single samurai. I mean, there's three of them on here already. There's three guys on the card. That's true. That's enough. Well, that means we should play three copies, right? Uh, all right, one. All right, let's talk about a much cooler samurai in every way. Samurai of the Pale Curtain. WW for a 2-2 fox samurai. Bushido, one. If a permanent would be put into a graveyard, exile it instead. So a 2-2 fox samurai with Bushido, one that exiles things when they die. Um, this card is Dynamite. Um, the art is amazing. The name is cool and evocative. Uh, and the stat line and playability and actually even the effect are all really good. Like this card is is really good. Yeah, I, I love this card. This is an easy, easy, probably the easiest auto include. 
so far. Yeah. Do we want to talk more about why it's so great? Yeah. Tell us about it. Oh, okay. All right. I'll keep, I'll pontificate and then you pontificate. How about that? All right. So my pontification. So first in combat, this thing's pretty mean by Kamigawa standards. It's a two, two for two, which is fine. Uh, It's a three, three when it tussles, which is great. Um, It beats almost every other two drop in the set. Um, And the exile is not chicken scratch. There are a lot of death triggers uh, in Kamigawa, the dragons, of course, the soul shift creatures have death triggers. Mm -hmm. Um, and so this actually shuts down quite a lot of interactions sort of for free. Um, and in the deck you're probably in, the human uh, or the samurai deck, uh, you don't really care about your graveyard. You don't really have graveyard synergy. So it's pretty close to being a one-sided effect. Um, so you've got just a straight like two mana, two, two uh, that is very hard to block uh, and that really messes with your opponent's game plan. This is just a good card. Right. And she also makes um, soul shift worse, not only you know, because you're not getting soul shift trigger when it's exiled, but you're not going to have as many spirits in the graveyard in the first place to bring back if they've all been exiled by Samurai of the Pale Curtain. Oh, good point. One of the things I really like about this card is how it, it does have this effect that actually matters and can be impactful, especially if you're going up against a spirit deck and you're able to get it out pretty early and at a pretty low cost compared to so many of the other effects that we see in white where they're you know, glued to really expensive creatures and you're still not getting that much. Like this is a card that would be pretty valuable and pretty good even without this ability, but then you're not, you're not being punished for also having this ability on the card. Yeah. There's a long pause there. Cause as you were talking, I was just staring at the art and contemplating how badass uh, she so looks great. like. It's, it's also just really cool looking like this. This thing's a, it's got everything. You, you had a, a note here about, Oh. Disciple of the Vault and Skull Clan. Yeah, so historical note. So um, this card was specifically crafted um, to be good at stopping Disciple of the Vault and Skull Clamp, um, and I believe Modular and all the other sort of artifact deck shenanigans of Mirrodin block. Um, for anyone who wasn't playing at this time or isn't aware of the competitive history, the block before Kamigawa, Mirrodin, the original Mirrodin block, uh, is one of the most busted sets in Magic's history. It's possibly the worst standard in Magic's history, or very close, um, maybe along with the original Urza block standard. Um, the deck, the artifact deck, was terribly degenerate. Um, it was incredibly fast. It had an incredibly strong, good kill. It was really resilient to interaction. Um, and so this card, I think, was pushed pretty hard um, with the exile abilities. Um, and with the strong cost, just as a card that could potentially compete with the power and speed of that deck. Um, I think that didn't ultimately prove necessary because the artifact deck had been nerfed pretty heavily before this card ever got to print um, because it was so good and so degenerate and unfun. Um, But I think, I suspect that's the reason why the rate is actually pretty good here is that they, in general, this set shows um, a fear of Mirrodin and a desire to back away from the power uh, creep of Mirrodin. Um, but I think with this card, they felt like they had to make it a little more aggressively cost in order to have a chance against the decks it was trying to combat. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of an interesting way of countering that too. You know, it's not just the sort of the most obvious artifact hate uh, on a card. Right. It's something a little more subtle. Yeah. Yeah. Great card. Um, I feel like we should put three of them in. They might prove too good if anything, but I, I like this card a lot. Yeah. Strangely, this card's never been uh, reprinted, even though it has kind of a uh, an evergreen sort of graveyard hate ability. And I, I assume it's just because it has Bushido 1 on it. I feel like if it wasn't for that, we would have seen this card sneak into core sets or, or show up um, in the 
18 years since it was yeah born. if if you listen to like mark rosewater or other people who were you know involved in the design or the development of the set um when they talk about bushido and some of the other like very kind of parasitic mechanics that show up here they seem very certain that uh these mechanics will never appear in any other set that's not kamigawa and of course now we have neon dynasty coming uh but I, I think that any card with Bushido on it, any samurai, anything where the flavor is, you know, so specifically tied to this Japanese lore, they seem pretty adamant about not recreating those in a, you know, unthematic set. Yeah, I think it's notable we're revisiting Kamigawa and the only uh, keyword mechanic I think that's being reused is ninjutsu, which is the coolest. Uh, ninjas are also cool. Um you know, the pity with Bushido is the ability itself is very kind of evergreen and you could see it fitting into all number of sets just as kind of a, you know, little right. glue mechanic. But the name unfortunately limits it. Like if they just called this, I don't know, Warriors Honor or Combatsmanship or something. <laughs> they just gone with Combatsmanship 1. Yeah, Combatsmanship 1. We would yeah, be seeing this yeah. in every third set. Okay. Uh, cool. Let's go to our next samurai who's also very cool. This is Sensei Golden Tail. 1W for a 2-1 Legendary Fox Samurai, who also has Bushido 1, as well as this ability. You can pay 1W and tap Sensei Golden Tail to put a training counter on target creature. That creature gains Bushido 1 and becomes a samurai in addition to its other creature types. Play this ability only anytime you could play a sorcery. So Sensei Golden Tail is a samurai who can basically train your other creatures uh, to also become samurai. Uh, really, really cool ability, flavorful, uh, and just like actually a pretty good card just with its base stats and as written. Yeah, this was the point in the review where I'm actually starting to get a little worried about how good the white weenie deck could be. Um, you know, this block in general is incredibly grindy, but we have a lot of really solid white, like two drops in particular, right? We just in this set, we haven't even looked at the next two, we have eight and a half tails. We have this guy. We have uh, Samurai the Pale Curtain we just reviewed. Um, we have Kanda's Hatamoto, who's fine. Like, there are a lot of really solid aggressive two-drops in the set, and I'm actually worried it could it could prove to be kind of an oppressive archetype. I mean, it's, it's hard for me to imagine an oppressive archetype in Kamigawa. Well, but relative to the, <laughs> the other archetypes. Relative to the rest of Kamigawa. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think Sensei Golden Tail still makes it in, but it'll be, yeah, it'll be interesting to oh, see. Oh, sure how strong the white weenies end up being. Yeah. I think the knob to turn there is, you know, the other right. white weenie cards like Samurai, the pale curtain and stuff. Like it, I think if, if the deck proves too oppressive, like I can't cut this yeah. card entirely. It's too cool. But um, I could see just saying we can't have this many easy to grab white um, cheap creatures. Cause it's just going to run away with the game. I do feel like we should dig a little more into just the power of this card. So two mana, two one um, with Bushido one is already quite solid. Um, it can attack in pretty effectively. Um, it's not double designated, unlike Samurai of the Pale Curtain and eight and a half tails. So it's a lot easier on your mana. But the ability itself is really, I think, pretty good um, because it stacks and it can even target itself. So, um, you know, if you can't attack in with Sensei Golden Tail, you know, just end of their turn throw another counter on him. Um, now he gets to Bushido two, you know, throw another counter. He's got Bushido three and you can do that with any of your creatures. That's a, that's a pretty good ability with a lot of, it is a little bit limited though, because you can only use that ability 
anytime you could play a sorcery. So it does have to be on your oh, turn. Oh, snap. Yeah, you can't see. I'm not reading the cards yeah, today, you Connor. Can't, this is a fail. You, you got to read them. That's that's the thing. That's how you win the game. Yeah, is, it helps. Read the cards. All right. See, I'm learning a lot here, readers, <laughs> about reading or listeners. So, you know, you can't you can't do the end of your opponent's turn buff him up thing. So it is it is a little bit of a you know okay. tricky choice that you have to make. Do I want to spend this turn buffing, having Sensei Golden Tail buff himself or buff someone else or swing in, um, which I think makes it a little bit more, you know, obviously makes it worse, makes it a little more interesting, but still really powerful by the standards of this set. Yeah, I still have this as maybe one of the top three or four yeah. white cards in this set. Sure. I think like Yose who we'll get to is up there, Ghostly Prison, Reciprocate, but I think Sensei Golden yeah. Tails in the mix. Um, one other thing that I love about this card, I'm pretty sure if I read it correctly that every time it uses the ability, the creature gains the samurai type. So if he uses it on himself, for example, he becomes a fox samurai samurai. Awesome. And he could theoretically be like a samurai samurai samurai, which is actually would go really well with our samurai enforcers flavor text. It would. Well, we need to make them human samurai samurai samurai. <laughs> That's your yes. goal. And the deck is to have all your creatures be samurai samurais. EDH rec, we got 54 decks built around okay. Sensei Golden Tail, which seals low. I mean, I know he's not super powerful, yeah. but he's just cool. He's so cool. All right, Singleton? Yeah, I think just one. All right, let's talk about uh, another cycle, the Zubera cycle. Silent Chant Zubera. 1W for a 1-2 Zubera spirit. Yes, you heard that right. Um, when Silent Chant Zubera dies, you gain two life, for each Zubera put into a graveyard from play this turn. I want you to go first on this because I, I think I might kill some dreams. I I really love the Zubera and I tried very, very hard to build a Zubera deck. Actually, not back when this set was printed, but several years later, I tried to make a Zubera deck featuring the Zubera of every color. So we've got Silent Chant Zubera and then four more of these wonderful guys in each of the other colors coming up. And it is a real struggle to make a five-color deck uh, that that works in any sense of the word. Um, especially in this block. Especially in this block. And this is this is not one of the most critical Zubera to that, that strategy. Um, so there's a card coming up later on that we'll see uh, called Devouring Greed, a black card that basically makes all of these Zubera work. Um, I'll save the full Zubera discussion until we get to that card. But basically the idea is that you, um, you know, use that to sacrifice a bunch of these Zubera and your opponent loses life. You gain life uh, and you wipe them out with a big wave of dying Zubera. So, so am I hearing you say we're going to put a pin in the full Zubera discussion until we get to devouring greed? I, yeah, I think that's, I think that's the right way to do it. Okay. All right. What do you think? I'm, I'm okay with that. All right. So can we so, even grade this? Do we have to come back and grade this later? We might have to have a separate Zubera episode. Can we? Can we have a micro episode just on the I'm, Zubera? I like I'm that. fine with that. I think we should have a micro Zubera devouring greed episode. Sure. All right. I'm just going to save my feelings. Let's just call it a build around right. for now. Put a pin in it. All right. All right. Our next card is Takeno Samurai General. 5W for a 3-3 legendary human samurai uh, with Bushido 2. And each other samurai you control gets plus one, plus one for each point of Bushido it has. So this this is, I think, the strong or the, the closest that we see in this set to kind of just an anthem type 
like universal buff to your samurai or just creatures in general. There aren't that many buffs like this in this block. Um, so I, I, I think that Takano definitely has a place in like a samurai deck if we can make that come together. Yeah, I think this guy definitely gets in. Um, I think the power is kind of okay. I mean, but on the other hand, if you compare, we're not going to have that many mediocre white six drops. And if you choose like, do you want Takeno Samurai General or do you want um, our buddies, where'd they go? Samurai Enforcers. Uh, it's like Takeno wins every time. This guy's so yeah. cool. So he's got to be in. Yeah, I also love the art here. It kind of looks like a like a movie poster for a um, like 1960s samurai film or something. It's really it like red and just poppy and it's just really cool. Yeah, I wish I had more to say about this card, but it was one that I always wanted and never got back in the day. Like I Samurai deck was probably the first Kamigawa deck that I tried to put together back when this set came out and I always wanted Takeno because he seemed like he was the glue that would make everything come together and make all my samurai so strong. Yeah. I think EDH rec agrees with you. This guy has 112 decks, which is I, more than any card we've talked about so far. Not bad. Yeah. And I, I feel like, you know, obviously a six man and three, three is uh, not, <laughs> even by not by the standards, not, not the greatest stat light, even by Kamigawa standards. Um, he would die to samurai enforcers in a one like a head-on battle. <laughs> His own enforcers. But there's three of them. Betraying there's three him. enforcers and only one Takano. That's true. So That's true. It makes sense. What I what I really like about this card is it it turns Bushido from just what's what's honestly mostly a defensive mechanic into something a lot more dangerous and a lot more powerful. And it it rewards you for really sticking to uh this bushido samurai archetype like really following the way of the warrior <laughs> i love um, that and i like it yeah one other thing i like about this is um most lord effects of this era affect everybody and benefit everybody um so we saw an example earlier for instance with um pious katsune which doesn't say if you control eight and a half tails it says if there is an eight and a half tails in play and for some reason oh, wizards often that. did this yeah it's weird right um but this uh, Takeno only benefits your samurai, which is nice. And it, um, I, I know some older players kind of preferred the the Lord pattern of everything gets buffed. But from a play perspective, particularly in a set like this, um, that's heavily tribal with not that many tribes and um, where stalemates be- are incredibly common, it really helps break a stalemate and, you know, actually let you finish a game. Yeah, this is uh, one of the few finishers that we're seeing in white. All right. Nice. Get him in. Get him in there. All right. Next up, we have Tarashi's Cry. 3W for a sorcery arcane. Note sorcery. Tap up to three target creatures. Um, So I went through a, a little bit of a journey in my head when I first read this. of saying, I mean, the rate's pretty bad, but you could use it to surprise your opponent ahead of their combat. You could use it for da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And then, and then I reread it and realized it was a sorcery. See, I do actually read the cards. This this sorcery thing, I think, is a bit of a, a weak point for you in your reading comprehension. Ouch. Um, well, they should. There's there's a lot of cards that should be instants, Connor. I'm just saying <laughs> that is true. This thing absolutely should be an instant. It would still be terrible, but it it at least would be worth talking about. But as a sorcery, it just I don't I don't want any part in this. Mm-mm. At least it's arcane. 
Yeah. Uh, the arcane spells in white are really bad. I feel like we've had like four, like almost every sorcery and instant we've talked about in white. We've said, at least it's arcane, but let's cut it anyway. I, I do want to uh, to note the flavor text on this card. It says, the sun kami, Tarashi, is terrible to behold. When its temper flares, best seek shade and pray for forgiveness. Because otherwise you might get tapped. Yeah, you might get really sleepy. You, you might not be able to participate in combat next turn. It kind of sounds like a nice afternoon nap almost. That's what happens when Tarashi shouts. You're just getting a little kiss from the sun kami. Huh. Yeah, Tarashi himself is interesting because uh, the name is referenced in three separate card titles, um, but has never been printed as its own card. I suppose that's because... Oh, yeah, we never see him. Yeah, I don't know. Cut it. Cut it. All right, next up is Vassal's Duty 3W for an enchantment. And it says, pay one colorless mana. The next one damage that would be dealt to target legendary creature you control this turn is dealt to you instead. So what this card does is essentially makes you the vassal of your legendary creature. Yes. Or any legendary creature uh, you control. um, And you take damage for them, uh, which is kind of a, a cool and interesting ability, but is one that I'm not sure is really any good. No, it's not. At least at this cost. I started to believe that it might be good because I was thinking, well, it lets you kind of control how combat plays out. You know, there's a lot of legends that you'll just have incidentally in play. You can, you know, you can set things up. So you just, you win every, every legend V creature combat. You know, I just went on and on. And then I went to like kind of sanity check myself on gatherer, for example. And this is rated 1.054 out of five on gatherer, which I believe is almost the lowest rating you could have. Um, Now, I don't put much stock in Gatherer ratings, but I think I'm on, like, high. This this card is just bad. It's really bad. Yeah. I, th- I think the fact that you have to, you know, you're not just taking the damage, but you also need to spend one mana for each damage you're preventing. Yeah. Um, I think is a real problem, especially since the card already costs four to put into play. Yeah. Um, you know, you're, you're saving your mana to save your legendary creature uh, and not making proactive plays. Yeah, if this came in for, like, two to cast i think it might be interesting to talk about um but at four it's it's not i don't think it's worth it yeah the the art's a little bit interesting though i think what's being pictured here is nagao a samurai who we're apparently very fond of and just talked about a little bit ago Mm -hmm. uh we have nagao bound by honor bowing to kanda lord of aganjo so it's it's kind of a cool callback to both of those cards oh, is that what's going there. on i've always found the yeah. art just to me it looks like Honda's about to beat him which maybe he is because of the damage it doesn't look like Con- he's got this yeah he's holding stick. up a club jeez Conda. i mean that may be that may be what's happening here that's his duty that's why i the other thing about this card is as you kind of nodded at and as, as some gatherer comments point out very strongly the flavor of this card is just bizarre like am i the vassal of this legendary creature. Like I'm the all powerful planeswalker who brought you into existence. That's right. Why am I taking the damage? It's not my duty to get beaten. Who's the vassal here. Yeah. It's really awkward. Like if any, if it was somehow reversed, so it's not, it's like Lord's duty. Like I am protecting them as my vassals. I don't know. It's just really awkward. Yeah. Awkward card all around. Let's cut it. All right. Let's talk about vigilance. No, not the keyword, the card vigilance W Enchantment aura, enchant creature, enchanted creature has vigilance. We talked about vigilance. And here it is. Okay, first, this card is not good. We're not including it, right? We just agree? Yeah, that's no. Okay. Um, so talking about the design then, uh, 
Wizard seems to have had a rule that when you introduce a new keyword, you have to have a one mana aura that grants it. Like alpha is just littered with it. There's like seven cards in alpha that are like, I can't, you know, like they give, they give haste or they give, I don't know if they give haste, they give flying, they give trample. There's all these cards that just give a keyword and nothing else. And I guess wizards felt they had to nod at that or like the players would only understand vigilance if they had a card called oh. vigil. Like, I don't know why this card right. exists. It's blatantly unplayable. Yeah. Just, just really bad. But in case, in case you missed that vigilance was being added to the set, here's a whole card that literally just says vigilance. Here yeah, it is. It's just kind of cute. I, I like that symmetry, I guess. Yeah. This card yeah. absolutely clogged my, like, um, I didn't really have a bulk section of my collection back then because every card was precious. But even then it was like, why do I have so many copies of this card? I, I don't think this card was precious to us even then. No, I don't think it's been precious to anyone. No. Goodbye. Goodbye. Happy to cut it here. Yeah, we're in danger of ending um, white on a down note, but luckily I think you're about to introduce our savior. I think we're going to end on a high here. Our final card in white is Yosei the Morning Star for WW for a 5-5 Legendary Dragon Spirit. That's right, we're on our first Legendary Dragon. Yosei has flying, and when Yosei is put into a graveyard from play, target player skips his or her next untap step. Tap up to five target permanents that player controls. Thank you. Thank you. This is, so this is a, a six mana 5-5 five, five flyer in Kamigawa, which is good enough already. And then it's a dragon on top of that for a little extra badassitude. And it has this actually like pretty good go to the graveyard effect. Yeah, it's almost a time walk. It's like half at least at least half of a time walk. Yeah, great card. Probably, I, I think we can probably agree this is the best card in white. Yeah, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that all of the dragon spirits are going to make it into the cube because yeah. we'd, we'd be, it'd be madness not to. Yeah, I think it's probably the best card in white. I mean, I think there's an argument for something a little cheaper, but no, I think it just on raw power, this must be the most powerful white card in the set. Like six mana, five, five flyer, exceptional den, still solid now, still totally reasonable. Um, and then that ability is really powerful. Yeah. And, you know, unlike a lot of the other kind of tricksy white cards that we've seen uh, so far, or I guess this is the last white card. So we've seen all the white cards, but unlike a lot of the other ones we've seen, uh, Yosei does have an impact on the board that you can control, at least in some sense. You are, you know, forcing your opponent to lose, like lose the ability to, kill you probably on their next turn by tapping uh, up to five permanents. So you're, you know, preventing lethal damage, potentially you're setting up lethal for yourself when it goes to the graveyard. One of the things that's really cool about all of these dragons, they all have this death effect um, is they create this nice damned. If you do damned, if you don't Mm -hmm. sort of situation that your opponent then has to, has to deal with. So this is a five, five flyer, which is definitely for this set a very, quick clock uh that your opponent has to be afraid of but so they want to get rid of it but then if they do they're going to be punished by this uh you know disastrous effect on their board state and all of the dragon spirits create this this really cool really threatening situation for your opponent yeah this is uh, one of the funny things about um kamigawa is it's generally quite weak and then there are just a handful of really strong cards um, in the set like the dragons are edh all-stars they have been basically since edh became a popular format 
Um, this card is uh, interestingly only the fifth most played white card in the set on Cube Cobra, um, mm-hmm. beaten by Cage of Hands, Otherworldly Journey, which I'm now starting to feel sweaty about cutting, um, Ghostly Prison, and Isamaru. Um, you know, this card is just a, it's an all-star. It's still super playable 18 years later. It's cool. It's got great art. It looks really fun. Uh, just a great card. Yeah. Um, one other thing about the dragons, uh, just from kind of a set design or flavor perspective is that, um, Yosei and the other four dragons were sort of consciously put into this set as, um, a kind of recognition anchor for people. So we've seen all of these Kami so far in white, and we'll see plenty more of them in other colors uh, that are just super weird looking, um, that don't have uh, a lot of things that at least a Western audience would recognize just from looking at the art as being distinctively Japanese or, you know, as really being distinctively anything. Um, so we have all of these weird kami, and then the dragon spirits are here as this super recognizable uh, archetype of not just Japanese mythology, but really all kinds of mythology where we see dragons. Um, So these dragon spirits, among all these other bizarre kami that are floating around, here these dragon spirits come and they're super iconic Mm. and just instantly Mm. recognizable to, you know, anyone that really has any kind of familiarity with just fantasy. That's really cool. I'd never heard that before. Yeah. All right. Well, that's a, that's an awesome high note to go out on. Um, I think we include only one of these, uh, you know, A, because it's legendary, B, because I think including more would be kind of oppressive. I think so. Yeah, I think one one Yosei and probably one of each dragon going forward. Well, it's been an up and down journey, but it's great to end on a high note with Yosei. Uh, If you have any feedback, thoughts, or memories to share about any of the cards or topics today, uh, please email us at clockspinningpodcast at gmail.com. And we'd welcome test drafts of the cube. Uh, Check for the link in the show notes. Uh, And if you do draft it, send us an email so we can shout you out. Uh, We're really grateful for... No! It's the Samurai Enforcers! I'm honor-bound to answer. Uh, So I guess until next time, I'm Austin. I'm Connor. Thanks again for listening.